Hello, citizens of Europe. As spokesperson for SAPS, the Society Against PlayStation, I'd like to talk to you about a menace threatening humanity. It's happening right here, in our very homes, and corrupting the lives of our loved ones. Yes, friends, I'm talking about this. It may look like a harmless bagel toaster, but inside is a deadly donut. How do you know PlayStation is not a normal game system? It carries these telltale signs. Scientists say its effects are mind-boggling. Users lose all sense of reality and enter another world. Here we have a normal, healthy young man. And here we have a fellow who's been experimenting with PlayStation for only a few minutes. Proof that we saps must be on our guard. Remember, do not underestimate the power of PlayStation. Hello everybody and welcome to the second of our single format one console special podcasts. We're doing these quarterly at the moment uh, and our beloved Patreon listeners get them three months early. Uh, This is the PlayStation show, the original PlayStation, later became known as the PS1. Uh, When remodeled and rebranded, we'll talk a little about that later on, of course. Head to caneandrince.com as we always say on a regular podcast, to find all of the content uh, that we produce, all the other podcasts about games that we normally do. If you found us for this PlayStation special show, we've covered uh, something like 340 plus video games over the last seven years. You can listen to all of those podcasts in our back catalogue. You can get the show a week earlier, as you know, for a dollar. If you're listening to this three months after it's come out, you may not be a Patreon subscriber. Uh, You could have listened to this three months ago and you could listen to our Game Boy show right now if you subscribe for just a dollar a month uh, the equivalent of around 76p although who knows what it'll be in a few months time uh, and you support the show and everything we do and you get some extra little treats like getting this and all of our other shows early Uh, We also have, as I say, another podcast called Sound of Play. If you're not aware, that comes out every Wednesday and celebrates video games music. Please subscribe, review and rate everything that we do on every platform that you can, really. It's much appreciated as well as follows on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of thing. So my name is Leon Cox and joining me in this PlayStation special are Jay Taylor. Hello. Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And Tony Atkins. Hello. All right, the Sony PlayStation. Uh, I think pretty much when we decided to do these format specials, when uh, Jay finally twisted my arm and persuaded me that we could do them justice, uh, I think he pretty much fired four consoles at me and said we should maybe think about doing these ones first. And uh, I didn't have any arguments with any of the lists. So Mega Drive it was, and now we're up to PlayStation. Uh, it feels like the time. I don't know why. I guess uh, it's not a particular anniversary, but it's uh, it's coming up to 24 years or something like that since the original launch. Uh, it was Japan, of course, being a Sony machine that it first arrived December the 3rd, 1994, for 39,800 yen. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent that was at the time but i remember i don't know if any of you guys remember i remember hmv selling import saturns and playstations at this point which was odd because they'd never dabbled in import stuff before and obviously it was a gray area but this was a high street retailer uh, and they were selling them for 400 to 450 pounds for ntsc machines but there were stickers all over the box saying 
beware your tv may not work with these or you, you may see it in black and white or so it was a bit it was a minefield and i didn't have 400 or 450 pounds to spend on an import uh the u.s model arrived uh nine months later or 10 months later in september 95 for 299 dollars and later that same month we only had to wait three more weeks for the uk or european edition which was released at 299 quid or a penny short of 300 pounds uh which was more money then, yeah. But yeah, I mean, sounds it's a bargain kind of... by today's standards, doesn't it? But yeah, it was yeah. more money then. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I suppose it's it's a little more than the Switch was when it launched in 2017, if you see what I mean. So, and I suppose even then it was a darn sight cheaper than the rival Saturn. Yeah, Saturn was a hundred pound more at this point. Um, yeah, I think it was HMV was selling them for fifty pound more, something like that. But um, yeah, uh, the Saturn. Well, we'll talk a little about the Saturn. We will do a Saturn format show at some point, but obviously it is uh, it was it was relevant at this point. The PlayStation, the original PlayStation, in its various uh, revisions and forms, not including the forthcoming Mini, went on to sell a whopping one hundred and two and a half million units. Uh, it was pretty ubiquitous. It's probably the first console I can remember where I would go around friends' houses of all kinds of pals and mates in our early 20s and there would just always be a PlayStation there. This was not like the Mega Drive and the SNES where it still felt more of a, you know, kind of a geeky or a niche or a nerdy concern. This was like people are starting to get PlayStations in. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was the start of uh, of gaming sort of growing up in some ways but let's uh, let's share our own histories and strongest memories of the playstation launch and subsequent era jay you're the oldest you go first <laughs> i remember the playstation probably stronger than any other console i've i've purchased mm. in the years since and a lot of that at the time gaming was for me just another hobby the thing that i did amongst mm. other, every, everything else it wasn't until the PlayStation came along that it, it, it totally changed my my. Yeah. What age were you at this point? I was uh, I, well, I would have been twenty five when I picked up my console for the okay. first time. So but relatively, I, oh, and <laughs> things, but yeah, okay, yeah. So I I had when this thing launched, I was aware there was a thing called the PlayStation out there. I wasn't paying that much attention to to right. the, the consoles and I. Even with the Mega Drive, it wasn't so much that I was like paying attention to magazines. I wasn't buying magazines that often, um, or any of that stuff. It was often just a friend would buy a console, like with the Mega Drive, and then I would jump in on. I was like, okay, I'll let me, I'll get one of these. Now with the PlayStation, um, my first exposure came through the Saturn. So hmm. I had a friend. We had a. I, I lived at the time. I was still living in Preston. I lived in the city centre, and I had a friend who lived like five minutes away and we i didn't have a tv at the time so i was living on my own in a flat i just never bothered with the television mm. um i used to go around to his and watch films we'd rent from at the time i think it was uh, called variety video on vhs now, cassettes yes yeah, yeah. yeah and i went around to his one day and he'd bought a saturn mm. and he puts this on i mean he was raving about it he was like oh you've got to see this mm. He had like one of those, I think it came with the thing or, or he bought a magazine and he had a demo disc. Now, at the time I remember, so this would have been possibly around about April or May of 96. Hmm. And he had 
on this disc, there was a Tomb Raider demo. Hmm. So this is like a good six months at least before the yeah. game actually came out. Yeah. Um, but I remember looking at this demo and it was like I had an epiphany, you know. It was like, <laughs> oh my god, this this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. These are the games that I've. This you know, explains your your terrible disdain towards sixteen uh, bit sprite art because uh, well, you yeah, were, you were wowed of. by the hideous graphics of Tomb Raider. Well, they weren't hideous back in ninety six. <laughs> no, they, they were like weren't. literally like I was just gobsmacked. But the thing is, it's like suddenly uh, they they took that whole cinematic. Uh, you know, I was controlling this character in this. It's not. It wasn't quite an open world. It was as open as worlds were, kind of at that time in, in those big. kind of games. Yeah, yeah. It, vast caverns for sure. So I'm I'm like gobsmacked, and I sat there all evening just playing. The, mm. I can't even remember what the other demos were because it was just Tomb Raider was the game that I had to play. Mm. You know, I was like, I've got to check this out. So. This was during the week. The next day I go back to work and there's a, there was a guy there I worked with, a younger guy called Tristan. And I'm talking to him. I'm saying, oh my God, I went around to my mates last night, looked at the sand. He was, oh man. He's like, nah, mate, you want to get one, of, you want to get a PlayStation? <laughs> of course, yeah. This and is how like, it went down all over the world oh, yeah. Yeah. for Sam. <laughs> and I'm like, why? And he says, nah, I'll tell you what, I can't, like, he, he just, he's, he's trying to explain it to me and I'm not being sold on it. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll bring my PlayStation and you can borrow it over the weekend. I was like, you serious? I'm like, yeah. Nice. So the next day he brings a rucksack in with his PlayStation. So I'm like, excellent. Thing is, I haven't got a TV <laughs> at okay. the time. Now, upstairs in the flat above me, there was, a, I had a friend who was, she had a job um, amongst other things. And this bears no relation to the story, but she happened to be a dominatrix as well, which was, that's, that's an entirely different story. But she had <laughs> an old is. color portable that was broken. Uh, the aerial, like one of those little radial aerials on top of the TV yeah. had snapped. So it didn't pick up TV channels. So she just stashed it on top of her wardrobe. But I went up there. I knew she had this. I'd already sort of mentioned it to her. That, and she said, well, if it works with this. You'd already been up there a few times, is what you said. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anyway, as I said, that's <laughs> another story. But, but yeah, so anyway, I took this PlayStation in there and we set it up and it worked. So she said, well, you can take the TV because it's no good to me. So I, I had this PlayStation uh, set up on my living I didn't have furniture. I just had big floor cushions in the living room. <laughs> So I took the dining room. I feel like somehow this weekend you're also going to pick up as like a sofa. <laughs> so no, you've, you've got a console, you've got a free no, time. No, see, there's, this is the thing. At the time I was doing a lot of painting, so I wanted the floor space as clear as possible because I just lay the, the boards Oh, at this down point and... you're like Brian in Spaced, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not at the right time. Yeah, it was, actually, it was actually a basement flat as well, which was like... Um, but anyway... So I had this dining room. I took one of the chairs out of the dining room, put it up in the middle of the floor. Floor cushions like propped up against the wall. I had the PlayStation propped up on some coffee table books. And um, yeah, I just set it up. And the first game that he'd, he'd given me was Alien Trilogy. Mm. And yeah, I just, I was just, at that point, I was like, yeah. this is amazing. Like this... I've never played, and I hadn't played anything quite like this because all the Mega Drive stuff I had was like Sonic and Streets of Rage and, you yeah. know, 2D side scrollers and mm. stuff like that. So these kind of 3D elements and the fact that it was quite, it, it's one of those games that you look back at it now and it's its terrible. It really has not stood the test of time at all. But mm, at that point, not. 
in 96 it was like the most oh, atmospheric yeah. thing i'd played in yeah. ever you know it was just i was mm. edging my seat so I, I i went back to him the next day like oh my god this is incredible like that was you know the motion tracker and all that stuff he then gives me doom and um yeah yeah and then i'm i'm talking to him like so i go back the following sort of weekend and i'm playing this thing all weekend then the third game he lent me was the thing that that this cemented me having to have one of these consoles mm. now one of the of all these games that are like doom and, and alien trilogy the thing i kept going on about was the atmosphere the the mm. sort of tension that i felt when i was playing it and mm. he's smirking when i'm saying this he says i'm gonna bring a game in tomorrow you gotta play this thing and he came in with resident evil right and i had like that was it the moment <laughs> i after yeah. one night of playing this i was literally i'm, I'm buying one of these things at the weekend like, because this was it for me. This was like, and I can never forget the kind of feelings that I had at that time. You know, this sort of just that here was this thing and it felt like a life changer, you know, very literally. Like I'd never played, never had those experiences. I mean, in fairness, it wasn't like, like I said, I wasn't buying the magazines. I wasn't really invested in the consoles. They were just mm. another, they were kind of like another thing that I had, you know, when I wasn't, you know when it was raining and i had nothing else no films to watch no nothing else to do i would put the, the mega drive on and, and stuff like that but this is where it, it totally changed and it became mm. like i was buying the magazines i wanted those demo discs i wanted to know what was coming for this console and it was just yeah like can never forget that i mean i felt like a little kid again but it's yeah yeah, it makes sense, the kind of games that you still love yeah. the most today. Um, not necessarily the most sort of, um, like, uh, deep gameplay-wise, sort of ludologically speaking. Like, you, yeah. you're all about the immersion, aren't you? Yeah, right? I, it's, yeah. you know, I think, although they've, they've obviously come along in leaps and bounds since, but it's still, I'm still driven by, like, story uh you know i love the third person stuff i love the story the narrative focus games the so things like resident evil that that was the game that totally mm. like literally made me go and spend 400 quid that weekend yeah. you know for all its goofiness that we discussed in our recent uh, podcast yeah. of course yeah well um the reason that this uh, actual podcast is uh, a little later than originally scheduled was uh, so we could get jay back on it and uh, and i think uh, i think we're very glad that we, we we've arranged that it was worth worth the wait uh, and obviously we'll be hearing more from jay throughout uh, tony do you remember getting your ps1 i do um and i'm sure this is a story that we're all share but maybe in a slightly different way so i'm i'm obviously younger than Jay, so I was 15 at the time of the release of the PlayStation. It's a good age for a yeah. PS1, I'd say. Um, and like Jay, it, I, I can't quite put into words, which is not going to help for a, on a show, actually how important <laughs> the PlayStation was for me and how it, yeah, bet, it, age, yeah. Yeah, it completely changed what I guess I expected from um, consoles going forward. And so for, for me, I obviously I'd, I'd grown up um, on a diet of Amigas and Amstrads, you know, you know, really nice early tech, and mm. never, never had a SNES other than the one quite late in its life. Um, oh, and same as a, a NES, got that quite late in its life. But I did have a, a Mega Drive, um, which I played a lot. You know, really, really liked my Mega Drive. But I was at that age, you know, fifteen, coming to the point of you know, just finishing up my education, um, kind of 
wanting to be you know a man as you do when you're suddenly at that age and um all my brothers i mean i had three brothers and they'd all just got to that point where they'd either left home or they'd kind of explored uh, the female <laughs> the female side of life or they just you know they kind of disappeared and it was kind of just me now left at home and you know where what would uh, originally been you know us sitting around the uh, us sitting around the mega drive playing games mm. together um started to kind of really dissipate and I, you know it, it kind of just left with me and i was kind of like oh okay am i kind of done with games and that sounds really weird but i think we've all been well maybe not but you know i certainly felt like i'd got to that point of like well, you know, I've loved games, but is it time for me to grow mm. up? You know, um, never happened to me, but I know it does happen to yeah, a lot of people. Um, yeah, and at fifteen, yeah, probably didn't need to, but yeah, that that was certainly what was going through my head. Yeah, but then it's interesting you you talk about HMV and um, the import scene that that suddenly mm. brought ahead because that's my first experience with the PlayStation. Right. It's walking into an HMV v store. Um, and seeing the PlayStation run up as a, on a demo on a screen in the background, right, and just being blown away. Just mm. what was on it? Can you remember? No, um, I'm pretty sure it was probably Batarina Toshinden at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all, obviously, a lot of the games we all talk about going forward in the show, you know, have yeah. they they have not aged well, and and there's many reasons for that. But yeah. you know, back then, yeah, a nostalgia thing. But they, they really, you know, the jump from 2D to 3D, and of course we'd see a PC had been doing stuff like this, but just to have it on a console, sat there on a screen, pushing what seemed incredible amount of power from 2D to 3D, just blew me away. And one of the games I remember sitting there watching was uh, Jumping Flash. And if you look at that game mm. now, it's I mean, it's awful. <laughs> it really is. But yeah, pre pre Super Mario sixty four three D platformer effectively um, in the first person. Um, it's cute. It was cute, and it it's was coming. Cute, uh, it, it's if, coming on the PS the, the PS one mini. So. But if you look at it now, like its <laughs> frame rate is horrendous, and it's it's a game that I know it's given many people headaches, etc., because of the way mm. that it's kind of framed in first person. But just seeing the way that a rabbit was jumping around the environment in yeah. first person in a 3D environment I was just you know jaw on the, gro- uh, jaw on the ground and knew that actually my, my life playing games hadn't come to an end it had only just begun and you know I was there day one to purchase the PlayStation with my hard earned money because by that stage I had a little weekend gardening job and earning some money and I think that was the other thing as well all the other consoles I had or you know Amstrad and Amigas they were from my brothers and they were hand-me-downs. They were just, yeah. oh, you know, I'm done with this now. Here's yours. Hmm. And this was the one Tainted. that I put my money down and I could afford to buy the games right. that I wanted rather than, you know, my brothers wanted or my parents wanted. And I think that's so much, you know, so powerful. And I can imagine kids today having the same with newer consoles. But for me at that time, the PlayStation just hit such a specific time in my life that I needed to kind of explore a bit more that you know whether i was still going to be a gamer or whether i was and i probably would have always come back to gaming no doubt um and i'm sure something we will say is they made it adult um we're talk. i'm sure we'll talk about this later but the the advertising and the commercials and the way they presented that device um it wasn't it didn't feel like they were just aiming at kids it felt like they were aiming at this brand new audience this kind of like mid-20s market and it just felt so refreshing um yeah so 
yeah, day one for me, and it's a huge nostalgia trick. Just looking at some of the games that I've played, uh, researching for the show, uh, I you know, and, you know, I've pretty, I've, I've welled up a few times to be honest. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Carl, uh, as is traditional, um, well, not always, but uh, often <laughs> you're 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 not the baby of the team, but you're you're the youngest on the show, and um, you would have certainly been too young to buy your own PS One. Um, but we regular listeners will know that your dad's a gamer, so I assume he's involved in your early PS One exper- experiences. Yeah, so yeah, my dad's heavily involved, and it is kind of strange to be the youngest one on a panel these days, but yeah, it's quite nice. Um, Enjoy it while it lasts. I know, I know. I was a child when this started, or it felt like it. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was eleven when the PlayStation came out in Europe, and mm-hmm. I was a heavy reader of yeah magazines. So mm. uh, CVG, Games Master um, were sort of the specific two that I would uh, sort of gravitate towards, uh, especially CVG and. For a long time, you'd see all the stories of uh, what PlayStation was doing in Japan and um, mm. the likes of Ridge Racer and, you know, the, the magical words Arcade Perfect would ring from page to page. And that was kind of the most exciting thing that I could have ever seen in print um, because I was obviously an avid uh, arcade games player and the likes of Ridge Racer and Tekken, which was coming and all this um unbelievable uh, sort of 3D graphics that we'd never seen before were kind of so close that were on the horizon so blockbuster um rest in peace was uh offering the ability to rent consoles for the first time and i want to say it was 20 pounds for a weekend and I remember just saying to my dad over and over and over again, I really, really, really want to rent a PlayStation. I know we can't afford it, etc. And I was probably that really annoying child. But my dad, you know, he enjoyed his uh, Mario and, and such on the SNES. And I, I knew there was sort of something there. And he was kind of interested himself because we'd not seen anything like it. Um, and, you know, we had the likes of Games Master and uh, such on the TV, so you could actually see it uh, sort of unfolding in, uh, you know, sort of in real time rather than from the pages of a magazine. Yeah. So the day rolls up, September 29th, and he's like, come on, son, hop in the car, we're going for a drive. So we go through to Blockbuster in Red Car. It was a, it's about a 15-minute drive from where I was at the time, and he'd already been in touch with them earlier in the day to sort of put one aside and he rented that and he rented um ballerina touching den and ridge racer uh, and we, I, we definitely rented a third but i can't remember what it was and it is it, it's really bizarre and it came in one of those big plastic had back briefcase kind of things with all <laughs> foam inserts and i remember just being so so excited um and we sort of got it home and he and i just spent kind of that whole weekend um playing on PlayStation and it wasn't mine but I knew I was the first person to play on that machine and I was it, it was just a totally different experience and um I remember my dad was just blown away with what he was seeing and it was Ballerina Touching Den of all things which you know is one of the games that maybe has held up the worst and maybe wasn't even that good in the first place but it was just technically incredible at the time and I just remember sort of sitting cross-legged in front of the TV kind of in awe at what I was seeing. Um, Mm. And it's the strangest sort of 
outer body experience of seeing myself as a child, enjoying it. And it was kind of strange because you look back at it and people were excited for PlayStation, but people really didn't know that that was kind of the moment that gaming was changing forever. Mm. Um, and Tony's already referenced the the advertisements that we were seeing on TV with what, for me, in my whole life, is still the greatest tagline in the history of advertising of do not underestimate the power of PlayStation because it was Sega this and it was Sega that and we mm. were hearing about, you know, the Dreamcast better, at, uh, the uh, Saturn's better at 2D, the Saturn's got these games, you know, you can't fail with Sega. And yet Sony just seemed to have this real confidence about them that made me get swept up in the romanticism of this new brand to the gaming table that I just had to, you know, I had to have. And what I didn't know is that my desire to have a PlayStation rented and sitting there and reading magazines for hours and hours on end, my dad already had a PlayStation Mm. (laughs) bought for me for Christmas. So... Mm. He went out there and rented it all, knowing that I already had a PlayStation uh, as my big box at Christmas, and he played it so cool. Of you know, if we rent this now, we you know you've got no, we'll do it because you've got no chance of getting one at, play, at Christmas. You just won't get you, you won't get a hold of one, etc. And it was just the most incredible sort of double barrel surprise uh, of the September twenty ninth, December twenty fifth combination. Um, mm. That you know, it, it a little like Tony said, I kind of get a little bit emotional thinking back about it because 11 you know is such a kind of important age you sort of feel like you're kind of developing your tastes at that point and then it's just that era in my life that I really remember I started secondary school you know I I felt started to feel like I was turning into a grown-up and gaming was developing and we were all talking about consoles and games on the playground and then just the, it all built up to this incredible crescendo of actually sitting down and playing it and a little like Jay said just blitzing it for a weekend was just unbelievable yeah amazing times yeah I also uh, got one the first Christmas it was out I wasn't necessarily expecting it it was a it was a bit of a uh, a similar uh, piece of uh, skullduggery by my then girlfriend who uh, went out and got me one and kind of implied very heavily that I was getting something for the Super Nintendo Earthworm Jim 2 as I recall um which you know was a was an expensive present then these were 50 quid games um yeah I mean I was completely in full blown um early 20s burgeoning hardcore gamer mode I mean I'd been obsessed <laughs> with video games since I was uh yeah since i was like six or something anyway had my own computer since 85 then got an amiga in 90 um then got the mega drive and the snes and i was absolutely i was just buying everything playing everything i had disposable income i had time i had a, a girlfriend who was also quite into games so we just used to buy and play everything we could and then the playstation came along and like uh like carl i, I you know i was buying magazines hand over fist and i remember I remember the PSX project being a thing and I remember I think I have vague recollections of the 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 supposed links with Nintendo which uh, collapsed and then um and then they and then they went to work with Philips but that didn't amount to anything either um I'd so, so I yeah I'd sort of read this yeah sort of loosely rumored thing that this PSX thing from Sony was happening and I was a bit skeptical thinking you know Sony what do they know about video games kind of thing um 
And I remember seeing, oddly, the first screenshot I remember seeing of a PlayStation 1 game was of a game called Choro Q, which is a Japanese sort of chibi racing game based on a line of toys. And I think it came out later as a Penny Racers, repurposed as Penny Racers for, for the Western market. Um, and it really isn't wasn't anything that much to write home about, but it was that you could see that it was 3D in a polygonal sense and it was textured. So again, for context, and I think it's important uh, for the educational remit of our podcast to, to say that there had already been 3D games around for a long time in, in many senses, particularly Polygon games. I'd had an Amiga, so I had played some solid, uh, solid stuff, not just vector, um, you know, line drawing stuff. But with Starwing, with the FX chip, uh, and then particularly in 1993, 94, we started to see uh, after virtual racing, we obviously saw Ridge Racer and Daytona at the arcades. And I think that was the point that we knew that textured polygons were probably going to be the future of the industry. So even though the home conversion of Ridge Racer wasn't arcade perfect, it was much lower resolution, lower frame rate. Um, it was so darn close to our our then eyes that just seeing these 3D environments moving around textured um, and at much higher frame rates than we'd previously witnessed on uh, most computers, uh, as we say, yeah, there, there were there were definitely exceptions if you could afford a really really high end PC. Um, but here it was becoming affordable and accessible without paying sort of 1200 quid for a box that could run, say, X-Wing on, you know, uh, or, or something incredible like that. Uh, so, yeah, it was exciting times. And, um, yeah, I got uh, I found out I ended up finding out ahead of time that I was getting it. She she caved in um, and I ended up actually she let me play playstation i think on christmas eve because we were going to be out all day christmas day and i was probably behaving like a sport excitable child at the age of 23 or whatever i was um and yeah i still remember the absolute absolute first moment even though it was only plugged into a probably a, a color portable and with an rf cable the moment that noise fired up i'd never had a console that made a big booming loud synthesizer noise when you turned it on before you know you you put depress this big circular clicky button and it goes you know i was thinking about that today and i was thinking you know was was that the first one to do that and i kept thinking in my head like oh well sega but then that was it's not know, the same it's the no, game yeah that was the game wasn't it, it wasn't yeah. the console and I'd, yeah every yeah. time you fired up the playstation you were greeted by a noise and yeah, yeah. it's a weird thing but a really i mean you hear that noise now and we'll play it when we're on the, on the show and oh it's yeah it just sends shivers down your spine it's ridiculous mm. yes and i'm i'm sure the mini uh if they if they don't have that the, when you turn the mini on they've they've missed a trick uh later this year but we shall see uh yeah and then i remember the fmv intros so strongly even though now i know that it like isn't even that relevant to what's actually on the disc but when I first saw that Tekken intro, which looks comically silly now, uh, it was like, "What the? How can my? How can a home games machine be doing this?" Uh, yeah, and then I just remember playing Tekken for days on end with my friend Simon. Um, even the yeah the slow PAL version, 
uh, we just had an enormous amount of fun. It felt so solid and real and kinetic. And Doom just, yeah, I was just obsessed with the PS1 version of Doom for months. Um, yeah, and I suppose it was my main, my my joint main machine, along with the Saturn, which I did add to the collection months later. And I I love every bit as much. Uh, every, you know, every gaming connoisseur now knows that the Saturn had an astonishing library as well. It was just good at very different things and didn't didn't do commercially as well but um, the Saturn was probably my most used machine uh, PS1 sorry was probably my most used machine for the next five years maybe uh, certainly until the Dreamcast came along um, yeah and I still have my I think what is my third PS1 um, here with me now it's a chipped machine plays import games and pirates but I don't have any of those it's for me it's, it's funny when we talk about um, the Saturn because obviously that was a, a very capable machine and you know it, it could absolutely do 3D but it just didn't have that it didn't land in that same way you know and it, yeah. weirdly there's this upstart I mean it's obviously Sony was a big company but there's this upstart mm. in the games industry coming through and my assignment for you know uh, Sega which I played for for many many years was on the floor and yet I was willing to invest you know hard earned money as a kid yeah. in, a, in a new machine that, and obviously I was aware of what Nintendo were, were going to be coming along with as well at the same time but just it, it's odd to me that you know the Saturn had such a, a muddled kind yeah. of launch before the PlayStation and the PlayStation it's, just you know walked over it it's the great irony was that Sega were almost you know they were like hugely responsible with the polygonal movement and getting you know 60 frames per second billions of or billion millions of polygons shunting around on arcade screens but then when they released their next gen console they weren't they were assuming that the home market wasn't ready or the tech wasn't there so they made a machine that could do polygons but they focused on a on a 2d powerhouse um, which the saturn undoubtedly was um, but it couldn't do transparencies and it couldn't do yeah. it couldn't do textures as fast uh, texture polygons in in as larger quantities and as Faster, but, except in the hands of some of their their in-house teams making conversions like Sega Rally and things like that. But the launch games were, you know, like the, we talked about the version of Daytona that was fun enough, but it was terrible, you know, terribly low frame rate, low resolution. So, yeah, yeah. it's I think it's a strange one when I'm thinking about PlayStation, because the game I most associate with PlayStation is Tomb Raider. And that was the game that was the big deal for the Saturn. Yeah, it had a a month-long exclusivity window on the Saturn. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost like that feels that that was the moment in time that Sega could never recover from because Mm. it was such a big hit on the PlayStation. And that was supposed to be Saturn's big big hitter. And it's such a strange... Everyone just waited. I remember I bought the Saturn version because it came out a month earlier and I knew that it was kind of... Yeah, it was like the lead version. But um, it turns out that, yeah, the PS1 version came out a month later and everyone had just waited for it. And, yeah. it, look, and it looked ever so slightly better and certainly sounded better. And yeah, it I was think the you're water, right. water, wasn't it? I think it was the water. Water was as well, yeah, of course, transparencies. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I yeah. think, I mean, the way I've always looked at it and the way I look back on it now is that it was there was a different mindset between the two consoles. I think Sega was still thinking of it as a games console for kids children's you know in in the sense that it's a toy and i think yeah. there was a different mentality with sony because although you know we, we mentioned already about the adverts that double life advert the probably the defining advert yeah. for the playstation didn't come out till 99 but no no, no it's earlier than that I no think. it's 99 was it yeah it's 99 oh, yeah, they had a few didn't there was a saps was the earlier one yeah I think. they'd already started 
coming out with good adverts before that, like mm. noticeable. But that was for me that was their defining advert. That was the one that literally. I mean, it literally won awards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it I've, was um, that did have be, some children in it. Um, yeah, but, yeah. But it, there was a different. I mean, I, the thing is with. With that advert in particular, I mean, it stood the test of time. You can watch that advert now in 2018, you know, yeah. 19 years after it hit still the brilliant. airwaves, and it's still relevant. It still speaks, speaks to, to what gamers, it is yeah. to be a gamer, and it's just yeah. like that. For I sure. mean, it was, I don't it, even remember Saturn TV adverts. If yeah. well, this is it. Like no. you look back on, like you, there were you can, some for yeah, games. You, you can YouTube a lot of this stuff, and then you see how there's a different feel to their adverts. They were more mm. like toy adverts. You oh know? yeah. And I think that even when the PlayStation initially, you know, around when Wipeout was out, they had like PlayStation booths at Ministry of Sound. Yeah, I was going to bring playing that up. Wipeout yeah. and stuff. So there was this whole there was a, a deliberate mindset between like tapping into a different demographic to what That's they smart move, move. saw yeah. the market yeah. shift in such a better way. Well, and also just to tap into people with actual disposable income of their yeah. own rather than trying to get parents to buy things for, you know, yeah. sceptical parents to buy things for, for nagging kids. You're actually saying, look, you know, you guys actually have money to to, to yeah. spend on our mm. kit in the same way as you might have spent it on previously on uh, Sony Discmen or mini disc players or whatever yeah. <laughs> had yeah. come before. That This is where Sony weren't coming in with the baggage of being a game developer, were they? Mm. They were selling commercial electronics to people yeah, of different fresh. ages. They did have so, a games label, of course. They'd released games on previous-gen systems, right. but it was, they hadn't made consoles. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so I'm just thinking it's it's like they've approached it like a lot of their other stuff. Like you said, mini-discs, CD players, whatever, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. So they yeah, had yeah. A, a lifestyle item yeah. for, for young... Right. I know, I mean, history obviously repeats itself, but I think Jay's point there, and I I agree with it, it just seemed like this fresh face, and it's almost Nintendo and Sega are saying, you know, nobody can come in the market and kind of challenge the rival between us two, and along they sweep and just, you know, completely obliterate the market. Classic complacency. Yeah, it takes some years to kind of, well, in some respects, you know, some won't recover, and, and, you know, Nintendo are doing their own thing and very well, it has to be said. But then it... Once again, it reminds me of that kind of arrogance then of Sony and, and Nintendo at the time. And, you know, Microsoft wanders in and says, you can't release a console. And then they, you know, they kind of half knock it and then get the 360 and then knock it out of the party. And you get it again now, which is no one could release a console. No I guess one could more release. I, other industries that I don't follow are yeah. similar in this cyclical nature. I don't know whether it's like it with, with cars and whatever, where... Mm market leaders get complacent and, and I'm sure there's a constant ebb and flow in every capitalist market isn't there you, you definitely see similarities I mean just to draw it outside it would be Samsung with TVs tying in with the Xbox 360 and getting the visibility in stores that kind of thing of sort of thinking ahead and the best way I ever heard it put with the PlayStation um, console or, or that generation battle was that Sega were trying to win the battle of the bedroom and Sony were playing a whole different board game they were trying to get their console in the living room Mm-hmm. they weren't even concentrating on the bedroom yeah. and that's where Sega missed out and funnily enough one of my other strongest memories of the PlayStation era from the mid to the late 90s is a spate of thefts uh, like 
I was one of few people I knew who had a PlayStation who didn't get their house broken into and their PlayStation nicked. And the weird thing was that in most cases, it was just their PlayStation. It was uh, it was this highly desirable, relatively expensive. I mean, the price did plummet. Were there well, shortages plummet, at the time? I can't. I don't really. No, 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 no. This was this was you know just people nicking stuff because it was easier to nick a PS One PlayStation than it was to nick a VCR because it was about a quarter of the size. So it was very easy. You know, people would just you know. Jam a lock and yeah, well. yeah, yeah, exactly, and just take it down to computer exchange. I literally, I I think off the top of my head I, earlier, I thought of five or six friends who had their playstations nicked, and in some cases they also had some CDs or, or whatever nicked. But in multiple cases, it was just PlayStation and games, and uh, yeah, it was it was genuinely about five or six people in the in the space of a couple of years. It was it was rife. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't remember a spate of friends being being robbed like it before or since. Um, but yeah, these were people who had their playstations kind of yeah in the living room, and um, yeah, it became a whole. You can take the console, just don't take the memory cards. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, people generally were more gutted about the memory cards because you can get a new one, but it's, yeah. We'll talk about memory cards in a bit. Just want to hear from uh, Thomas Quilfelt from uh, the Kane and Rince family who says, Electronics Boutique in Harrow, Resident Evil, Wipeout and Soulblade, not a bad start to my relationship with the PlayStation family, which persists to this day. Games had come so far in terms of design and tech, but there were still evident limitations, like the puny draw distance in Tenchu and G-Police, long loading times in Riven and Street Fighter Alpha 2 and the crunky 3D of so many titles. But above all, there were consoles landmark games that I'll never forget. ISS Pro, Gran Turismo, Metal Gear Solid, Tomb Raider, Ridge Racer Type 4, Resident Evil 2, Tekken 3 and the horizon broadening blockbuster that changed it all for me and many others, Final Fantasy 7. A great console and a golden age of developers defining the qualities of series that would persist to today. We won't go deep into the development history. There's a lot written out there. I've already mentioned the relationship with Nintendo, which apparently nearly cost Ken Kutaragi his job after he was uh, he was speaking to Nintendo about this relationship without um, uh, with without their say so. Um, the PSX name, I think, is an unusual case of a, uh, a a code name, a development under development title working name being still wheeled out to this day you still see it on con on on forums and stuff which i find bizarre like magazine there was a magazine called psx and magazines regularly used to refer to the psx um but yeah that was literally just its uh its working I mean, title yeah. um playstation themselves use psx now to uh the experience the name for their own expo so mm, mm. uh but yes the hardware itself um Obviously, CD-based, which was uh, the first... It wasn't the first console to market, which used a CD. Obviously, we'd already had the CD32, and we'd had... I think the 3DO had already been out by this point. Um, but, again, it um, it brought that and some other stuff. Uh, a 33.87 megahertz CPU. Oh, blistering fast. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess compared to the PCs of the time, it wasn't very fast at all, was it? It was um, about probably... I think we were looking at, like, Pentium one three threes or something. Yeah, at this point? probably. Yeah, just just Mid-90s. about the one three threes. I remember my friend getting a one three three in about mm. ninety six, ninety yeah ninety six. Right. So this was considerably slower in raw uh, data processing power, but uh, it had two meg of RAM. 
um, which uh, seemed like a fair amount at the time, and one mega video RAM. Um, it had various custom chips that uh, that helped the pushing of polygons and 16-bit 24-channel ADPCM sound. Uh, graphical display, it could actually support a number of dis- different resolutions. I, I don't think I really, I don't. I guess I just wasn't that aware of these things yeah. at the time, and, and there was no digital foundry to explain what resolution your games were running in, but it actually supported everything from 256 to by 224 up to 640 by 480 although there's only one game in existence which actually runs with in-game graphics at uh, 640 by 480 and that's a a game called internal section um, which is a tunnel shooter Uh, most games ran at 320 by 240 um, but there was a high resolution mode which uh, games such as wipe wipeout 3 and its special edition ran in which was uh, high resolution in one direction but not in the other uh 512 by 240 um yeah uh i don't i, I do remember certain screens looking higher resolution than others because they would often use higher uh, resolution assets on like loading screens or change disk screens or stuff like that but obviously in terms of keeping the the frame rate up the in-game stuff tended to be at the lower end of of resolution and and i guess that's why we now associate many uh, PS1 games with looking extremely blocky. But having said that, you know, we'll, we'll get into talking about some of the, the individual titles, of course, but the the difference between some of the early titles, uh, the first-gen stuff like Lone Soldier compared to the later stuff like um, Vagrant Story and Metal Gear Solid, like it looks like it's almost on oh, a different Yeah, I mean, that's the same as every machine. console, right? But yeah, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, I think even more so here because mm. it was developers working with with new tech i mean lone soldier looks like minecraft yeah yeah Yeah. uh audio um obviously redbook audio was possible cd uh stuff the the console did have uh, a sound chip as i say and um you'll certainly hear that used in many cases um for which uh, had yeah sort of offered a more traditional not chip sounds but uh synthesized sound i suppose you say midi type sound um magical isopod on the forum says just a few short months ago my friend and i played through metal gear solid together we were both impressed at how incredible that game sounds there's something about the ps1 and early cd gaming in general that is still really impressive today the ps1 could deliver this really clean cd audio that doesn't really resemble modern games it almost feels like cd sound was new so developers played with it in really interesting ways you wouldn't have background score you'd have a distinct soundtrack you'd have these sound effects that felt designed to make full use of contemporary surround sound systems. Games today generally feel very flat in their audio presentation, like everything is in this very narrow band of sound. On the PlayStation, it felt like sound was much more of a priority, and it's not nostalgia speaking. Some games have these incredibly full soundscapes that I've really only seen in early CD-based games. Playing certain 20-year-old PlayStation titles on my modern sound system still sounds incredible, and I really wish I had the technical know-how to better explain. Whatever the PS1 does with sound, I love it. Does that ring true for anyone? I hadn't really made that connection. I mean, it wasn't till really the sort of PS3, 360 era that like surround sound started coming in and, and that sort of stuff. You know, that's when, mm. uh, no, you know, yeah. at the time, I think everybody I knew who was playing these things was just playing it through the TV speakers, yeah. which was most likely a mono, spe- you know, stereo, if you were lucky, <laughs> most of the time it was like through a mono speaker, even if you were playing on a portable for sure. Yeah, um, I was very excited when I bought a TV that could support uh, stereo sound. Yeah. Um, 
which added a lot. Yeah, to pump. yeah, definitely yeah, a lot of the early it's games. Like, ooh, I didn't know it could. You know, it sounded like that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's strange because it's one of those things you don't think about until you kind of hear it just said in like off situation. Is I remember playing it through a, a daft little portable and then getting a stereo TV with just daft speakers on either side, and it was a, like it was a whole other ball game when it came to the sound, and I think it was incredible. And I think what Magical Isopod's saying about the, the sound, I don't necessarily think it is any better or that it necessarily sounds any more incredible than anything else. But creating the sound for that new system was a, a genuine craft at the time. And whilst it was incredible to hear soundtracks, such as the one we heard in Wipeout, which was just, you know, we that wasn't possible before, there was... Games creating new identities for new audiences, so there's the immediate audio recall to specific sound effects, like the alert sound in Metal Gear Solid, or uh, the first time you enter the tombs in Tomb Raider, or the footsteps uh, in Resident Evil, which you know I think we recalled recently on the Resident Evil um, podcast of the the sound of the pistol, the sound of the shotgun, and the running on the tiles. Like these are sound effects that became iconic and incredibly memorable because we hadn't been able to hear them before. And I don't think it's necessary that they are more technically uh, sound or that they sound incredibly good because they're actually really low sound bit. Mm. But it's kind of that console where it's drawn us all in. We all remember where we were when we experienced those the first time. And if I hear those sounds now, I'm back there in that moment for so many things. And I think that's where my fondness for PlayStation Mm. sounds come from. Yeah, it was a striking contrast. And uh, yeah, and actually, they, it became increasingly less common as the PlayStation went through its life, I guess, because they were trying to preserve disk space. But early on, many, many games just did have their soundtrack playing off a CD. Um, so Ridge Racer, Wipeout, uh, and various others I used to stick in my, you know, stick in my stereo and, and listen to them that way. Uh, and they, they were, yeah, high quality, you know, CD quality Redbook audio. So so that did sound, uh, that did sound good. At um, least track two onwards. <laughs> Yeah, when yeah, track yeah. One was yeah. yeah. Yeah, some CD players. If if you ever tried this, some CD players would attempt to play the no data, clever. and and it would uh, sound horrific, like a high pitched squeal. Uh, some CD players uh, muted it by uh, yeah. sort of automatically muted it. I don't know how or why. Some just wouldn't see it as a track, would they? Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so we mentioned the uh, the boot up, the the famous and the way it transitions into that warning screen, um, which it does if there's a disc in there, but not otherwise. If you don't have a disc in there, um, there's a very rudimentary UI by modern standards indeed. Um, but again, this was something we hadn't really seen before, because if you turned on a 16-bit console without anything in, you just get a black screen. Um, but now you could put a CD in and select a track, or you could put your memory card in and shuffle the blocks around. That was it. Pretty much, there was nothing else. Was there? There was no. Oh, the was there a music representation? Oh the yeah, visual okay. representation there was, yeah. of save file icons. Yeah, as well. Yeah, and the T Rex. Don't different. forget the T Rex. That was on the demo disc. Yeah, was it? Yeah, demo one. Mm. Yes, you, you the, well remembered. I didn't include that in the show notes. Yeah, demo one was a disc. Um, that you had to put in the machine and it had various uh, powerful yeah displays of, of the PlayStation's uh, visual oomph and yeah the, the T-Rex that you could yeah. zoom in and around this was I, I, it was one of those things where we were just staring at this and there's no sound on it is there because no, they didn't no, put it, just it was just this, onwards. but you could use either one of the buttons would open its mouth yeah 
and and I just remember, my God, look at the graphics on this, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it was, Jurassic and I was, I've, I've actually ripped a video of it because I thought I'd use it to promote this podcast because it's cool. just something that yeah. I. You know, What's yeah. actually just, funny thinking back to this actually is that the um, obviously PlayStation, well, Sony were a little bit cheeky here because there was no packing game, and traditionally nope. most consoles released mm. with some kind of packing game. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we talk about memory cards, but there was no memory. Uh, nope. ability to save so you also no, had to no, buy no on board no clock you had to buy a memory card so the time you yeah. bought yourself a game and a memory card you weren't that far away from that that's another price yeah yeah totally yeah and, a, and another controller yeah, yeah it was yeah absolutely one controller out the box and and all that and so on um there were umpteen revisions of the playstation hardware uh they re- i don't know it's like 30 times they revised it maybe almost um, the all the early ones up and into the uh, sort of ninety six seven era uh, were afflicted with FMV skipping issues, which was to do with the the calibration of the laser. I think basically yeah, in the positioning of the it was too deep, wasn't it? It didn't sit up yeah. far enough. Um, I didn't really understand any of this, but I remember playing with my PlayStation uh, on its end and upside down. And, That's uh, the heat, yeah, wasn't it? The upside down <laughs> thing was because of the heat. It didn't have a great heat uh, distribution. Yeah, so turning yeah. upside down actually made it cool quicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, it also dropped the laser to read closer to the disc. That's it. So it solved two issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they moved everything around uh, over the course of the, of the machine. Probably the later you got one, um, I think it was it was a bit like other systems in that the later you got one, you got a, a more cheaply put together machine and probably paid less for it. But actually, it, they they sort of reduced things like the video out options as the system went along. You, you'd end up with you know fewer outputs on the back of your console. And, and yeah, there was a there was a serial port in the an I/O port in the back of the original that I'm not sure ever got used for any kind of expansion um in the way that machines have um you could link up a machine with link cables of course uh, i played some uh doom and some command and conquer in that method um well other memories of of uh, technical and strengths and weaknesses of the console overall i certainly had my playstation upside down for a number of years yeah um that was uh, commonplace and it's ridiculous right i mean imagine doing that to a new console now it's oh it doesn't bear to think but yeah no it's uh i had that absolutely um yeah and what about the aesthetics of the actual machine because i like I, it I, I, yeah i still think it's it's definitely a bit retro now but i still well, think the the fundamental gray rectangle with three big mm-hmm. discs is quite a pleasing. I always found it quite pleasing on the eye. Um, of course, the the rival magazines would refer to it as the grey station. Ah, oh, so cutting. Um, <laughs> they got worse uh, than that in the playground. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, I bet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I'm quite. I, yeah, I, I liked it when they did the the, the mini remodel. But um, there was that was very dinky. It was about not much bigger than the CD. Yeah, but, I had a PS um, one, and um, yeah. I think I'd be brought it more out of curiosity than wanting to play yeah. it and I still have it pretty it much it was very late wasn't it it was like yeah, so I, I've still got it boxed and I've, I've probably only played on it once or twice you got the so. LCD screen see that was the no, main reason to have no. one of those but it's, was to... yeah it's too dinky though it's too I don't know well we're about to get a re-release kind of, of it, but it was yeah I, I didn't personally like it as a as a machine to own and, and use but I think it was kind of cool but I, I've yeah. always liked that that original PlayStation look I, that, that yeah. grey is pretty cool and like you know it's it's kind of cool, but at the same time, a little bit. It, there's still a little bit of kiddishness in there with the kind of the color scheme of the, with the um of the D-pad or D-pad on the um the controller itself with the square 
and the uh, cross and triangle and a circle. Yeah, so, they went for less fully overly bright uh, play school colours like, you know, like the, the European Super Nintendo, for instance. They went for a slightly more muted colour palette, which, again, I suppose played into the, the idea that yeah. this wasn't just a children's toy anymore. Yeah, it's but got equally, fins on the side. It was called a PlayStation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are we actually referencing the fact that they changed the buttons from letters to symbols? I'd completely, nothing else did. Yeah, I'd completely. Yeah, that's 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 yeah. Well, the, um, the story behind that is obviously, yeah, yeah Japanese uh, Japan yeah. culture was that obviously uh, circle, yeah, cir- circle back and X to continue, and then um, was it? I no, believe, yeah, Japan. other way around in Japan, Japan. Yeah, um, circle forward, cross back. Yeah. But which is why games are still back to front now. <laughs> isn't Square was meant one. to be the the equivalent of like opening up a manual almost for them? It's that's yeah. why they saw it, and I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I think so. Was triangle a map? Was the idea that I think yeah. triangle was a, like a waypoint or something on a map? The what? There is a reason, isn't there, for all four symbols? Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, oh god, yeah. They would have workshopped the heck uh, out of that. <laughs> and, and, and of course, uh, shoulder buttons. Um, which, yeah, which, four again, shoulder buttons. Yeah. Four shoulder buttons. Very mm. unusual. And yeah. I, I, I remember being a bit surprised um, when, like, when I read about them not actually using buttons or letters. Um, and to this day, people need to still stop calling it X on a PlayStation yeah, controller because it, it drives I, I, me up the wall. I still do it sometimes, but um, yeah, it's easy to forget. Um, but yeah, it's not an X. That's that's the other consoles have an X button. No analog <laughs> sticks, obviously at launch. So. No analog, yeah. Yeah, we, all, di- all digital, all digital controller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, D-pad only, as is uh, coming with the uh, with the mini, as it were. Um, other revisions. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing screenshots of the the blue uh, debug machine, the development machine. I'm not sure. Uh, I, th- I think some uh, people got hold of those by nefarious means just to add to their collection. Um, but probably the one that caused a lot of conversation, and we actually got to sort of uh, try out in the sense that um, they uh, the the official PlayStation magazine would release games made on net Eurosa, um in on their demo yeah. disc every month so this was a very cool looking black playstation i wanted um, this so bad <laughs> oh it was uh, it, and it only because so it cool. was only because it was in black i just yeah. thought it was like it looked the coolest thing ever so it was uh, considerably more expensive than a regular playstation and was effectively your own little home development kit for making video games really unusual idea um quite forward thinking almost like something this was something that always felt a bit more Nintendo-ish to me than than Sony, but um, Eurosa means let's do it together, hence the name. Um, and it, I think it did get released uh, in Europe, but I don't remember ever seeing one on sale. Um, it was obviously a bit of a niche concern for the for the creative types, but I wonder how many developers it was responsible for giving them one of their first looks at um, sort of making games i don't know obviously it's, yeah, it's, it's not it's like now it's kind of strange isn't it because there was nothing like that in the console market i mean we'd seen it with the amiga where people were making games um because they had the, the kit set up but to actually have something that was such a home games console mm. to actually be able to develop and it always sounded cooler than in reality i'm sure it was but there's always some creative minds isn't there that can come up with a concept that's so out there and so brilliant um and i mean there were some games weren't there that actually got retail releases as a result oh, right. 
I'm pretty sure there was. Yeah, I mean, I remember playing some yeah reasonably decent. It was it was very much like a throwback to the public domain days of the Amiga and Amiga uh, cover disc uh, magazines with cover discs and getting uh, little homemade homebrew projects on. Um, I remember playing a, a decent sort of uh, Pang type game and a decent uh, uh, puzzle bobble or um, magical drop type affair. Um, yeah, and uh, well, at least one developer did make the leap from Eurosa to. Uh, to the big industry because um, Mitsuria Kamiyama, who directed the soon-to-be remastered Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, started as um, as a Net Eurosa guy. So, yeah, that's worked out pretty well, <laughs> pretty well for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was no. It's it's sort of. I mean, I don't know if it did well for them financially or not, but there was no. They never did a follow up for PS2 or anything, which is kind of a, kind of a shame. Um, but yeah, other than the black PlayStation, Carl, obviously, I know you would have probably been a bit young, but um, obviously you did uh, go on to study um, aspects of uh, you know three D modeling and all that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, games design. <laughs> would would this have been a would this have been a way in? Had you been able to access it? Do you think? Yeah, um, for sure. And I was fortunate enough that when I actually was at university, there was the dev units, a fleet of dev units for the PlayStation Two set up. Oh, okay. Um, for actually being able to develop. Uh, in in terms of the home console market, right? Uh, so I feel like obviously I was a little bit early, almost. But had I had my hands on it, without a doubt, mm. you know, it, if it wasn't so expensive, yeah. it's something that I would have loved to have played with. And it was it was always great when stuff gave this avenue um, to see an insight. I remember, uh, work. It's not Worldcraft. Yeah, Worldcraft that came with like Half Life on the disc for you to be able to get into games design that way. And right. Sony were doing it with this. And obviously, way back in the Amiga, there was the options, but that was so over my head at that time. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was a little, little bit too young for it. Although it, it was something that I consistently read. I, there was a, a section that ran for a while, I believe, in, I want to say it was CVG that you could actually follow, which was really kind of cool. Mm. Yeah. Uh, interesting times. Uh, so one th- another sort of prevailing memory I have uh, was trying to persuade my friends that they should buy SCART leads, RGB SCART leads specifically, because uh, out of the box, the, the PlayStation came with an RF composite cable. Um, the signal tended to look like uh, fuzzy pants. Um, and I'd already been using RGB SCART leads with Amiga and Mega Drive. Uh, sadly, the Super Nintendo didn't support it, but uh, but yeah, specifically RGB SCART, you had to explain that that was the one that had all the pins that would actually separate out the colours and give you much more of a pixel sharp uh, image, which uh, which looked particularly good on uh, 2D stuff, ironically. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of remember almost frog marching friends who were who I was playing ISS Pro with at the time to game shops and saying. That one, that's what you want. Four ninety nine, can't go wrong. Um, yeah, stop using that horrible, uh, horrible RF signal. Yeah, in, you're playing it wrong. You're playing it wrong, <laughs> like like some sort of yeah gaming, uh, gaming fascist. But you know, it was important. I, I always I always thought if you've paid two hundred, three hundred pound for a console and you're using, you know, it doesn't make any difference anymore because you get the you get the right leads in the box. But back then, they would give you the... And up until recently, in fact, even the 
the previous generation was like this you'd get you get the worst kind of cable in the box and you'd have to go and source your own so there's another few quid on your purchase um, but yeah it really did make a difference um, although I, I suspect actually there are some games which may look better with a slightly more indistinct um, signal when the ones that use lots of um, meshing and cross hatching and that kind of thing dithering whatever they call it so yeah, we mentioned ad campaigns briefly. Carl, you mentioned Society Against PlayStation. This was, I think this was the first one in the UK. Uh, it was already sort of starting to play into the idea that uh, cool people had PlayStations and idiot annoying nerds didn't want you to have PlayStations. I found this campaign very annoying, actually, and, and um, I don't think it lasted too long, but I think it did. It got a lot of attention, even if it wasn't liked. Yeah, it, it... It, it was the whole colour scheme is kind of the, the strange thing that I remember, this almost um, Big Brother style. You won't have what you want, you will have what we want you to have. And the the sort of the the teenage, almost uh, young adult fight back um, that yeah. made me kind of want it more. Mm. Like I wanted to be with those people, like the revolution kind of thing. It was a, a really strange thing, but in terms of... Uh, imagery and colour and and slogan usage, um, incredibly powerful for my young mind. Uh, definitely worked. Yeah, maybe that would have been, you know, given the age uh, the age difference, that would have been more effective on on yeah on the on the slightly younger viewer than than me. Uh, I was uh, the one I really remember as well as the double life one was the mental wealth one, um, and still to this day, if you look it up on YouTube, uh, you still get people saying, "Does that girl actually look like that?" Because it really it really was a very well done special effect. It's um, Chris Cunningham as well, isn't it? So it's it's like I have a, a DVD of all his works. Uh, oh, okay. These kind of director box things where it's all his, all his adverts, his Aphex Twin yes. uh, videos and stuff like that. And that, and he's got his PlayStation adverts on as well. And yeah. it, it is a really disconcerting advert, to be quite yeah. honest with you. You do look at that, that. I mean, at the time, again, this is 90. So 99 was, they they really did a double, double hitter with right. those two adverts. Mm. They are that kind of advert where it there's barely a mention of playstation until the very end mm. and it, it's so weird that it is still a formula that works it's it's like you don't need to show the games you don't need to show the console you don't need to show anything that is even remotely game related yeah it's about selling an such, idea isn't it and an yeah, atmosphere yeah. mood i mean yeah. you saw you saw cabris do it years later with um a yeah. gorilla playing mm. phil collins yeah and you think like you're sitting there and the yeah. moment these adverts start, it's that thing where you can't take your eyes off. You're thinking, what the hell is this? What What is this? I mean, with Double Life, it was more about the fact that what they were saying, mm. you related to it. Yeah. Like every line of that script mm. is like, yes, they get it. You know, they just, they, they, they understand. Mm. Uh, but yeah. the mental wealth one was just like, you just... You you yeah. couldn't take your eyes off it. You're like, what mm. is what? What mm. are they selling? <laughs> you know. And yeah. then it's, and then at the end, it's like you know, don't underestimate the power of the PlayStation or whatever. But it's just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Sony obviously now for the players. It's yeah, another tagline. It's they use for you know, great effect. Yeah, I've I stuck think with it, that for a few years. Quite yeah, a few but it's um, I think it's just a, a change of attitude. You know, who are your customer base? You know, what's the easiest way to you know to talk to them direct? And as I said at the time, it was incredibly powerful. I don't, I'm I'm sure there was ad campaigns like that, but you know, maybe I was more susceptible. Right age, you know, right time, right place. But it just it really felt like 
it went from and they weren't kids machines but you know they they were advertised almost that way and mm. suddenly there was this and it let's get no you get out this way you know Sony were a big corporation where you know they have shareholders and they they, they needed this thing to to make money etc so you know that you know boardroom decisions were like this you know they they absolutely knew what they were doing but they they just decided this machine was set for a different group of people and it was you know they did it extremely well and I think you know you can look at you know what Sony or what you know Microsoft and all these different companies Nintendo are doing now, and I think they owe it a lot from that that kind of early ad campaign what Sony were doing then and just changing the way that the industry has been not you know viewed by everybody not just you know the people that liked games you know we all liked games but viewed by you know someone like my parents that suddenly were paying attention more like, oh well, what is this machine it's not just for kids what like it it confused the market it, it, you know it just you know disrupted the market that's the right word um at a time when it it obviously was a really powerful statement to do which you know i think and i think that's the difference between the um, sega and, and the saturn launch it didn't seem to like it just seemed to rest in its laurels and do the same things that it had done before where this new kid in the block just came in and changed the market i think i think that played into the games as well to a large extent as well i mean you didn't yeah we saw you know the resident evil we saw metal gear solid during that the game's lifespan but i'm thinking also of like um abe's odyssey you know it's like he was a uh here's a game that has a real kind of almost political uh, element to it, a really kind of biting anti-corporate message in there and stuff. Maybe it was just the case that here's a mainstream system that was bringing these kind of games to people that was different. I, I don't know. It just felt like everything kind of mature. There was a suddenly there was a maturity that suddenly started to get. In the medium there. was getting older and the players were yeah, aging yeah. with it in the same way as yeah. happened with rock and roll. But of course, also, you know, by the same token, what you're absolutely right about certain games, um, you know, growing up, but also we go back and play some of these games for the Cane and Rinse podcast. And, you know, the, a lot of yeah. aspects of them in terms of presentation and, and storytelling are absolutely laughable. And they oh, are, yeah, you know, yeah, it's hard to believe they're yeah. not for only idiot children because the scripts <laughs> are so bad. But I think the, the bar the bar was so much lower back then as well, though, wasn't it? I mean, well, yes. You know. Yeah. By and large. So Magical Isopod says for Christmas of 98 or 99, I'm not exactly certain, we got a PlayStation, but with no games. My brother, whose birthday fell on the 22nd, would receive Crash Bandicoot from our uncle. I would receive a copy of NHL Face-Off 97 at some point during the Christmas break, but I honestly can't remember where it came from. It just sort of appeared one day. Either my dad or his girlfriend at the time must have noticed I didn't have a game to play on my new gaming machine. Although Face-Off does not survive the passage of time, I do remember having great fun manipulating the free agent system in the game to ensure my favourite team was stacked with all-star players while other teams were simply unable to compete. That first year we would pick up one of my favourite PS1 compilations, The Raiden Project. My dad had actually played Raiden in the arcades and when he saw a used copy for $5 he just had to have it. The Raiden Project would serve as my introduction to shmups. This version of Raiden 2 in particular persists today as one of my personal favourite games. One particular year was a major turning point for my life in gaming. That Christmas, my brother and I were each given $100 to visit Toys R Us and buy whatever we wanted so long as we stayed on budget. After much discussion, we both decided to get one PlayStation game from the $20 or less bin, one Game Boy game and a deck of Pokemon cards. 
I went with Mega Man Legends, he went with Final Fantasy VII. I'd been a Mega Man fanboy since a very young age, having played X at my cousin's house. My brother, being younger, picked Final Fantasy VII for no other reason than he'd seen it in a magazine ad, and it had more games in it, citing the larger box. <laughs> we knew nothing about RPGs, but came out with two of them. These two games in particular were stories I daydreamed about for months, or maybe years. They were very, very special to me, and still are really. One distinct memory I have of the PlayStation is the sheer rarity of some of the best games. I remember hunting high and low for copies of Tomba, Einhander, The Misadventures of Tron Bon, Valkyrie Profile and more. And let me tell you, in Sarnia, Ontario, you were never going to see these games in person. And if you did, it was a flea market for ludicrous prices, even back then. By this point in my life, I had very discerning tastes about video games. I knew what I wanted, but not always where to find it. So, being the clueless teen I was, I put all these ludicrously rare games on my Christmas list. And my mum actually found one of them. Listen, my mum is a great person. She will always try to make me and my brother happy, even if it means giving a handwritten list of obscure Japanese PS1 games to a store clerk and asking which they have in stock. And, because she is who she is, I own a mint-conditioned copy of Einhander, which she gleaned for the exorbitant price of $7.99. I am now 28, and still finding new PS1 games to add to my curated collection. I also want to mention the mod chip and the culture surrounding it at the time. Most kids I knew had a modded PS1. A lot of game and computer stores would install it, but would not sell it. They'd usually direct you to a sketchy shop in the city, <laughs> or a website from which you could obtain one. When the slimmer PS1 came out, everyone knew this secret trick where you could play burned games by spinning the disc with your hand before starting the console. And it actually worked, kinda, some of the time. I recall mod chips also being unreliable. Some would kill your console, some just wouldn't play burned games. It was this really bizarre time in gaming history where computer technology felt like this underground black market of secret hacks and dubious tech. Kinda cool in hindsight, you gotta know a guy who knows a guy, but everyone can get a mod chip. So yes, I have a modded PS1. Uh, I did uh, come into possession of a couple of pirated games, but uh, they were ones I later purchased. Um, lots of my friends had tons of pirated stuff, but in the tradition of that kind of thing, um, these were you know these were copies being handed and burned around, you know, sent around the offices. But no one would really once they got them home because there was no value to them. They wouldn't generally play them very much. You know, it's that that sort of double-edged sword of of piracy. Um, but I certainly uh, don't think we can let this show go past without remembering some of the hoops that people would go to oh, to gotcha. play uh, to play import games or pirated games by doing things like uh, propping the lid of uh, the lid open, depending on which revision of console you had, um, taking the spring out of the lid, and various other what bits. A, what Did a anyone, great time! Did anyone dabble with all this craziness? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> So what did you do and why? First of all, let me talk about mods. Um, yeah. The reason I got my PlayStation modded was because um, I saw a friend's console playing Metal Gear Solid yes. uh, that he'd imported from the States. Yeah. And uh, Considerably earlier. Considerably earlier. Months, months before. And, you know, go back to the Metal Gear Solid show if you want to listen to my thoughts about Metal Gear Solid. But to <laughs> say that I was blown away by that title would have been an understatement. And yeah. that... I literally the next day I was you know where do I get this modded well I need this game um, and there was a shop up in London and uh, that both sold and modded your hardware <laughs> and it was really under the counter stuff yeah. and yeah you know, I'm a young young guy at this point yeah 
And so I, I remember going into this slightly back alley shop, handing over, and it was something like £70. It was, you know, a reasonable amount of money. And the fear that my PlayStation was going to be bricked because they were going to break it. And, you know, thinking about it now, it's probably just, you know, some geeky guy that <laughs> just was wanted to help other people out play, you know, cool games which they didn't have access to. But I felt it was such a... I felt like a criminal doing it. It was ridiculous. But... Um, it was because of that, you know, we don't have it quite so much now, but the, you know, the, the delay between American and, and well, US and European releases, uh, and it was a big deal, and I wanted, you know, at that time I was super into my my games again, and I wanted to play mm. this stuff and, and not wait around, so it's a completely different time as well, because the the internet isn't prevalent at this point, you, you, didn't, you didn't just go and, oh, I'll buy this and it's going to turn off my doorstep you had to go to a store that had that stuff in stock and you knew they were paying you know they were charging you over the odds for it but it didn't really matter like i i remember buying that copy of um metal gear solid and you know paying an assorted amount of money for it but it made it even more special being able to play it before anybody well what it felt like before anybody else Mm -hmm. in this kind of nefarious way at the same and and paying all this money, like I played that game to death and 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 adored it. And I remember a number of second-hand shops, and they were always, you know, and kind of like the weird kind of mall that you'd go into, and there'll be a, oh, I say mall. That's not really a British term, is it? You'd go to you go to precinct. a, a no. precinct. Yeah, you go to somewhere, <laughs> and there'll be a half a dozen kind of run-down stores, and there'll be a little gaming shop in the back corner. Yeah, and there'll be that guy that's got that yeah, glass yeah. cabinet, and in the front there, it'd be like you know the almost the you know. What are you buying? Open up and you'll be like, mm-hmm. oh, I can't afford any of that, but I'll, you know, I want something. I've come all this way. I'm going to get something. And it's just, it's very hard to put that into terms of people now because, you know, piracy was such a, it blew up, didn't it, for a very long time. But I was never, I never mm. modded my console for, for the reason to pirate it. I modded my console for the reason to play ga- games earlier than I could. And I, and I never got down to that piracy thing. It, it, it didn't interest me. I wanted that jewel case that, or that case that just kind of flipped open and it would occasionally crack and you'd cry because it would be a one with four discs in. <laughs> but, um, yeah. It was like, but yeah, so, yeah, and I absolutely do remember having to spin the disc up and hold it down so it would load up the region of the disc then put the power or put the the whatever the NTSC version in and get that to play and just little tricks that the you know mm. ridiculous nature of opening your your lid up of your console yeah. and having the disc spinning. And the fact and that then, they actually kind of missed that in yeah. the you know <laughs> taking the, it out whilst it's spinning. Yeah. Oh, you know, great yeah, times. It, it well, out of curiosity, I mean, I wonder if this because how big a, a deal was piracy within games consoles prior to that generation obviously, at all yeah this is it i mean i think outside of the amiga <laughs> like yeah, oh, yeah computers it was, like oh yeah, yeah computers it was massive but consoles it was almost non-existent yeah but that's possibly down to was it down to the fact that they came you could burn them on cds and stuff like that yeah. Cost, yeah when it came to like the mods and that whole scene it was kind of a bizarre one we had a um a local relatively independent a retailer of games in the northeast that did always offer the option to import and i always remember they ran a service where you could uh, get your console modded to play import games yet they were always very certain to state that it wasn't themselves doing it right yeah they were merely a service that could put you in contact with someone Yet, right behind them on the counter, I remember walking in and seeing what must have been 50 PlayStations stacked on top of each other with post-it notes 
with people's names on hmm. and a contact number where they, they, they were just like in and like it, it was a, just a ridiculous business um of of the of money they must have been making seeing mods and i, I do remember when my dad returned home from work one day with just this almost a file like it must have been eight or nine pages of a4 sheets just stapled mm-hmm. typed front and back of all the games that you could get oh right five, four or five pound a game yeah um and i mean if there is any such thing i'm probably going to hell because i got all of my friends consoles chipped at that time by talking and looking through it in church when we got dragged there by school. And because that had no interest to any of us, no. we were deciding that if we were to go through it, which games we would have. Um, so, yeah, it was it was like a, a huge thing because the amount of kids who didn't have a PlayStation, who knew they could get it modded and then get cheaper games and then got PlayStations, was just massive like everyone seemed to have a playstation because now they could get cheap games and it was really kind of it was just a really strange situation and it must have been bad for the games developers but it was great for the success of sony obviously Mm. um in in terms of hardware shipments but yeah it was really strange and i I would run all the tricks you know remove the spring spinning the disc changing the all that kind of stuff uh different hardware revisions because god knows i went through my fair share of yeah. PlayStation consoles. And I was always the person I wanted the retail version of it. Of course I do. Everyone knows I buy a lot of games. Um but that was just a completely different time to be able to have access to to like these these games or import games. Metal Gear Solid, I had the Japanese imports so far in advance and I got as far as Psycho Mantis before. How the hell was I supposed to know what to do? It was mm. in Japanese, like yeah. I had another barrier <laughs> as a task. It's also um, worth saying that there were some games that we never got. In fact, there were loads of Japanese games we never got, yeah. but but there are some games that came to America that didn't come out here. So one of the, the probably the two main reasons I got my chipped PS, PS1, PlayStation, were Square games. One of them was Final Fantasy Tactics, which never got an official release on the PlayStation in Europe, and the other was Ironhander, the aforementioned oh, Square shooter. up so, um, and some And also 90 nine percent of the time well firstly zero power games had a 60 hertz option which yep. which was something that came in next generation with dreamcast and ps2 for some games um and so if you wanted to play tekken at the right speed instead of soup mode you know treacle tekken and it was noticeable oh yeah even then and this was the start of the era where the magazines would actually put side to side screenshots and show you how big the black borders were and stuff like this so it was like oh wait okay so i need to yeah. i need to sort myself out otherwise i'm playing i'm playing crapper versions of the games that i want to play so yeah, and now yeah. I tell, I tell you, after playing a year of Metal Gear Solid on a uh, an NTSC version versus yeah. suddenly going to a power version and yeah. feeling like literally I was walking in treacle, yes. it was a it was a big difference. And yeah. you know, we talked about that many many times on the show. But yeah, just yeah. spending time with devices and having the ability to see it. And as always, if you if you don't know any better, then sometimes you know what do you know? But actually, if yeah. you you do have the ability to access that stuff, yeah. it was a big deal. And but in some cases, so it I, was, let me tell yeah. you the difference between Tekken Free NTSC oh. and yeah, Tekken Free oh, Power yeah. is it might as well be a different game. It's so much more fluid. Some magazines actually marked the PAL version down. This was mm. when it was really yeah. starting to get serious, where they were saying, "Look, this is not on anymore. <laughs> we can't we can't be doing with this." And that that's the thing, like. 
I know we we've talked about this before, and very occasionally you get. I think you know most of our listenership are, are on the same page as us, but you do occasionally get people saying, "Oh, it doesn't matter." You know, PAL versions were fine. I, I enjoyed them, but actually, in some cases, like Tekken, you're getting a, a game where you you might buy the PAL version, and you might think, "Well, this isn't as good as all the reviews said," because. Yeah it's just not the game that they've played you know it's like a slower version of a game that's meant to be really fast so yeah Mm. or then you have people who say it was fine like i had no problem with it memory is a powerful tool because it plays a whole world of tricks on you because when you go back to it you know you might go oh Mm. yeah it's a little bit more sluggish but even now you put that next to the ntsc version Mm. And you will never say that Tekken 3 Pal was fine. I, I think we'd all agree yeah, it, here. It's one thing to do that when you've got a comparison. If somebody had put two TVs side by side or, or whatever and showed me the difference in versions, then maybe it might have become a thing. But there was, I didn't have access. There wasn't people doing that. I only knew one guy who had a modded console. Um, and he kind of, uh, several times he irked me because he would come in flashing Silent Hill like probably what a year before I got to play it mm. and it was just like F you you know <laughs> it was just like um, but it was never something that mattered at that point I mean until I started getting into like getting the bigger TV and, and that sort of side of things it, none of that stuff ever really mattered to me um, I still felt that I got to play the game I mean we're talking about Tekken. I mean, you know, I had, we had some amazing nights of, of Tekken when yeah, we were, were actually playing. I played you know, Tekken work. one and two on PAL, and yeah, yeah, but and and loved them. But yes, then but then, I yeah, think we the comparison kills the, it. Well, that's it. As soon as you, I mean, luckily for us, maybe at the time we didn't have things like YouTube and and stuff like that, where you would have seen a comparison video or something. Well, you know, those like of us who went get... to the arcades, of course, you had a comparison in terms of game speed. Yeah, but I never... I was getting a a version of that game. I knew it was never going to be that game as such at the mm. time. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't, I mean, it clearly didn't, you know, mm. it, it was a it was a television standard issue and to yeah. a lot of people it, it never even registered. But it was, for you know, for those of us who are reading certain magazines that started to highlight the, the disparity and... Yeah, for those of us who are sensitive to frame rate and things like that as well, it was it was like hang on a hang on a second. But yeah, and no, I'm not saying that everyone hated PAL games because clearly they sold billions. You know, move twenty you know plus years later down the line, and the companies are actually you know actively kind of seeking out those people with their you know their half generation step consoles. It's it's like yeah, do you want slightly oh, can you, you know, uh, better uh, yeah. frame rates and slightly better you know visuals and it, like, buy a buy our latest machine. It you know, you know plays the same game but slightly better. So I mean that's well as we've said before, imagine if a game had come out even ten years ago if if they'd released say Call of Duty Modern Warfare and the US and Japanese versions were you know super yeah, slick yeah. 60 frames a second and everyone and they'd said oh by the way in europe you get to play this at uh yeah like 85 percent speed and and you're stuck with it i mean how would that have gone down like it wouldn't have it just wouldn't but we've also seen sort of the dissolution of like the difference in in technology exactly. you know the, Thank- the tv standards have become yeah. kind of standardized now so it's yeah yeah it, it, it's a combination of a lot of things i think with with that sort of stuff absolutely but, but this but yeah my point being that not hmm. for obviously not for everyone because yeah there were definitely loads of people i work with who were yeah it's kind of less into that stuff than i was but for me it was this was the yeah. start of the era of this yeah i've got a got to play these games as they were intended and um, mm. and then that made me go back and think about all the 
all the PAL versions of um, eight and sixteen bit stuff I'd played before and, and reassessed. Them. I mean, that said, I mean to me, the one thing like at that, given the time frame that we're talking about, sort of the late nineties and stuff with this stuff, I, I I was a stickler for like I wouldn't buy pan and scan. Yeah, exactly. VHS, you know, I would yeah. always go for the widescreen yeah. letterbox version. So in a way, that's the similar kind of totally. thing. Totally. Yeah. The irony is you're adding a black border there instead of taking one away. Yeah, but I <laughs> yeah. felt like I was seeing the whole picture exactly. as opposed to Precisely. half of it. So yeah. I, I get the, I get the. I mean, the, to be honest, the only the, the only thing that really irked me at, at, with this particular generation was that having to wait. In some cases, maybe never. Like I, I, I was particularly um, irked with Parasite Eve. I oh. wanted to play that game so badly, yeah. and I remember going into um, Game Station in Camden and having a go at the staff guy who, who served me because there was a <laughs> copy cool. on there was a copy on the shelf of Parasite Eve, and I grabbed as soon as I saw this. I didn't even bother to look that closely at the box because. Ah. Had I noticed the Japanese text on the back, I might have <laughs> not been so. But I went to the counter and, and was getting the cash out, and he said, "You, you realise this is the Japanese version?" Mm. I was like, "What?" And he, "Yeah, this is like a, it's a Japanese copy." And I was like, "Well, why is it on the shelf? Like, why is it there for me to pick up? And why is you know why didn't you just stick it behind the counter and tell me you've got Japanese edition?" Like, and I was irked, not necessarily because of that it was because i wasn't going to get to play that game that i so <laughs> desperately wanted <laughs> but yeah what can you do um yeah so the controller we mentioned briefly uh again it's sort of hard to it's hard to throw our minds back but it was a slightly unusual looking beast at the time because the prongs the prongs hadn't really we hadn't seen those before actual yeah which is kind of odd when you think about it because it feels completely natural but nobody until sony had thought actually if if you've got your the rest of your palms kind of sitting there off the edge of the controller, might might be nice to put something in them and have a firmer grip. So I guess that was the biggest um, sort of change about the PlayStation controller. Uh, obviously, the other issue was the fact that Nintendo had the uh, the rights over the the cross D pad, so Sony had to sort of display theirs in a different way, even though it's fundamentally very similar tech. But uh, but they've got the sort of well, like a cage or a grid over the top of it, so it's not a not a fully it's not a cross pad in the same way as a Nintendo. Yeah, and ironically, that seems to have worked out more in Sony's favour, if anything, um, because it was a really, really solid D pad compared to some of the other efforts that we'd seen from. It wasn't. From yeah, it was good for some games, not for not for everything. Uh, it was a little. It was hard to do things like again. It was another sort of way in which the Saturn was the, the as well oh, as yeah. as well as just having uh more memory for 2D sprites um the actual uh, like if, for doing hadouken motion you know motions and things the the Sony D-pad wasn't so good but for for yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of arcade type stuff it, yeah it was uh, and it was, of course was Sony have evolved that D-pad to be actually a really solid D-pad now yeah um, yeah everyone it was always a bit knows the value it always now. felt a bit clicky and solid didn't it to push in at times it wasn't took a lot of breaking in pleasurable yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then a few years into the console's life, uh, they started uh, bringing analog into the equation, um, as in on the on a regular controller. That was an option for a while. The uh, the dual analog, no rumble in that model. Uh, Ape Escape, uh, 
yeah. was uh, one of the first games that was uh, designed entirely to work with analog controller. Actually, I think that came out around the same time as the DualShock because it definitely had rumble support, didn't it? You get a big old vibration when you when you mm. hook a hook a Nasaru in your in your net. Um, I um, yeah, I bought my analog alongside G Please. Oh, okay. At that point, I'd been I'd been reading that you know it worked with this new controller they were bringing out, and yeah, mm. I, I remember. I, I mean, most likely, I just went into HMV, which was in Preston Town Centre, and just and, and bought the two together because I do remember talking to Tristan back at work the next day and talking about how amazing this controller was to play the game, like how incredible it felt to have the two sticks because you were basically flight controls. Yeah. You know, you're flying the ship and it felt so intuitive yeah. back then. Like mm. just using the sticks to move. It was just like, oh, this is this is incredible. It's, uh... it's odd to think uh, for a controller without two sticks now. Obviously, the N64 had its analog, you know, one analog yeah. stick. Mm. But to have two and, yeah, to, to present that with people, a new generation now to take away your analog sticks. I suppose, you know, handhelds have been messing around and doing it for a long time. But... The thing I remember, and, and I went back to, I haven't actually been back to the, the PlayStation particularly for this episode, but I did go back to it um, about 18 months ago. I got my original PlayStation and messed around. Mm. And how light those pads are by today's yeah. standards. I mean, obviously yeah. they had no rumble or anything, but that, that original pad. And I always yeah, have yeah. that whenever I play, you know, any of the, the retro consoles, you know, Meg Drives and um you know, nintendo's efforts as well there's certainly the, the nez when it you know bites into the side of your hands it's got these jagged edges it just seems ridiculous by today's standards but uh, from an, uh, an ergonomical point of view the playstation handed in your control your hands around it i mean they've they've obviously evolved that design but not hugely it's grown a little bit so it's got a little bit fatter around those barely hands. changed it's... at all until ps4 i mean that was yeah. that was a, it's a relatively major for me to use hmm. Mm. But yeah, to that that Joanna stick was uh, obviously a massive deal and uh, yeah. continues to do be so. The Dual Shock, uh, yeah, obviously uh, did have issues with the the big dead zone in the middle of the middle of the thumbsticks. But um, yeah, and obviously because the, the console didn't launch with it, every game had to also be playable uh, with the standard controller. I think probably for the duration of the machine's life, other than. Maybe a few exceptions. Ape Escape. There were a few that had Dual Shock kind of required on yeah. the case, from what I can remember. And they even re-released some games like with Rumble yeah, support, like Resident Evil. But, if, but even Resident from a game point of view, if you take you know the lifespan of the PlayStation itself, do you take mm. um, something like Ridge Racer, the the original Ridge yeah. Racer, and uh, yeah, analog control, no digital control, wasn't it? <laughs> digital yeah, yeah, yeah. control, you know, yeah. bit by bit by bit, you know, having to master, you know, turning and and kind of drifting in in that style. By the time that you know the was it. Fourth Ridge Racer had come out. Four, yeah, yeah four um, was the one that support really supported the Dualshock. So that, yeah, that supported felt the Dualshock, and yeah, completely felt entirely different of a playing experience. And then that's mm. just the, the lifespan of the console, and the same kind of game completely evolved by the way the controller evolved with the system over that period of time. I remember being really, really excited for the Dualshock. Um, I didn't get the analog. Uh, it seemed a little no, expensive at the time, yeah. and like I, I didn't need it, and. It seemed like the Dual Shock got announced quite quickly. Yeah. Um, obviously, there was only a one-year difference, but I seem to remember the analog was out not for very long before we heard yeah. about the Dual Shock. And I remember I had an issue of it would have been either CNVG or Games Master, and I was on holiday in Mallorca with my best friend at the time and my parents. 
And I had this magazine and I, I must have read it cover to cover countless times in the two weeks we were there. Um, and there was a review of Gran Turismo. There was a review of Resident Evil 2 and the Dual Shock. And I remember I came home and my dad took me straight to the shops that day and we bought Gran Turismo, Resident Evil 2 and a Dual Shock controller. Um, and that was that was a that was a heck of a day. I still play, still played Resident Evil Two with the D pad because I was already used to it, and I still do to this day. Um, of course, you could have played Ridge Racer in an analog style with the Negcon that came out very early on, possibly even at launch. Uh, a very odd device that involved strange twisty twisty thing in the middle. Yeah, you twisted it uh, in the middle, twist it the left half to go left and the right half to go right, and it would uh, accept different degrees of twisting. Uh, not sure I ever actually had a go on one of these. Um, it was yeah an unusual device and then um, they followed it up some years later with a slightly more traditional looking device which was a sort of hybrid steering wheel and controller in that it had controller like handle prongs but in the middle it had a big old disc which looked like something you might try to crack a safe with um, and yeah. operated like a yeah like a probably like the, the uh, DJ hero turntable <laughs> only maybe slightly more clicky i never had one of these either because oh i did oh, okay <laughs> i had the ridge racer 4 box that box, came with the yeah game i think the controller. sold quite a few yeah um and i was really excited to try it and i remember i had a friend who had bought it but he needed some money immediately so he made me a deal where i bought it for a, well i say i where my dad gave me yeah. the money on the morning <laughs> um and he delivered it like brand new fully sealed um, I'm still not entirely sure about the legitimacy of where he got it from and what happened, but either way, I got a copy of it. Um, and I was playing Redressor 4, and the strange thing is, conceptually, it's good. It was okay to hold, but the little thumb divot mm. that you'd put to steer was quite small yeah. and not very... Yeah, and it was very shallow, right. but also it had force feedback on the wheel, oh, and it yeah. was ridiculously strong. So <laughs> you were fighting with like a shallow divot that was already hard enough to use as it was so whilst really it's fighting your it. back. Yeah. Right. Was it fun or just too... Do, it, do you know what? It really, really was fun, though. I, okay. I, I liked it as a controller, but you mm. could not really use it for anything else. It was for like that game. Fortunately, uh, Ridge Racer Type 4 is one of the games that's been announced for the Mini, uh, which only comes with the D-pad. Actually, because they, they nailed the handling with the D-pad in the first game, they pretty much kept that model in. So yeah. so it's, it's still going to be perfectly playable uh, in its own weird digital way. Uh, other peripherals that came out for PlayStation included uh, Namco's GunCon. Namco were perhaps one of the biggest supporters of the PlayStation with games and add-ons uh this was a, a pretty nice light gun which worked uh chiefly with the point blank games and time crisis um and was yeah it, it was hard I, I always found it quite hard to calibrate perfectly but when you yes. did when you did get it right um it was uh it was yeah it was really no it was almost as good as the guns in the arcade but it didn't have the clickety clackety uh recoil sadly yeah and it, and it did work with the uh Die Hard Trilogy, Die Hard 2 as well, which was always a fun light gun game. Okay, um, there, yeah, there were some third-party light guns which came out as well, which uh, which also Which were... did have the recoil as well on oh, some okay. third-party ones. Right. I tried, I tried mm. a third-party one with recoil. It was not like no. the G-Con in the arcades. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
arcade sticks. Now, I know both Chris O'Regan and myself still possess and treasure the Namco, again, arcade stick, which is a sort of gunmetal grey and yellow affair. Um, I've owned this for 21 years now, and it still works absolutely perfectly. It must be one of the most durable console devices ever. I can still plug it into my PC via an adapter and play MAME on it. Um, amazing. I'm sure there were other slightly more plasticky arcade sticks Um this was for me as somebody who played, you know, compilations of old arcade games and fighting games, Soul, Soul Edge and, and whatever else. So um, this was, yeah, uh, as always, an essential part of my kit. Did anyone else uh, branch out with any extra peripherals for their PlayStations? Yeah, just the multi-tap. Oh, of course. Yeah, the, the sort of wedge-shaped multi-tap. Boomerang, strange-looking, yeah, yeah for for control unit multi-tap. yeah of course you needed one of those to play well lots of things um because unlike yeah the the n64 which would arrive a little while later which came with four uh controller ports ps1 had the traditional fairly traditional two um yes we certainly used multi-taps on um pro evolution soccer nights or iss pro as it was then um mouse, uh, the mouse the official playstation mouse i had two of these because it was the best way to play uh, Command and Conquer in multiplayer. Yes. Um, there were some other great games that supported it as well. Syndicate Wars, the follow-up to Syndicate by Bullfrog. Uh, you could play the Broken Sword games with the mouse as if you were playing on a PC. And perhaps uh, most remarkable of all, in Argonauts' uh, excellent Alien Resurrection first-person shooter, a game that not nearly as many people played as Alien Trilogy, but is kind of now regarded as something of a of a lost classic. Um, I think people were put off by the fact that it was A, tied into a, a movie which most people hated, and it was kind of late in life. But it's this... And, ri- it, and it had a ridiculously unusual control mechanism well, on a first-person shooter. It did, yes. Um, but you could <laughs> play it with a mouse and, a D- and a, with a D-pad in your left hand using basically doing WASD keys and mouse um and yeah it worked remarkably well uh daytel memory drive i had one of these as well now this was basically a floppy disk drive with a playstation connector and it meant that any normal three and a half inch floppy disk was a memory card so instead of buying memory cards at how much they were they weren't cheap were they 15 pounds i think Probably was it nine ninety nine in the end? Yeah, uh, probably. Eventually they went down. When I first bought mine, they were all twenty quid. Yeah, for fifteen blocks, how much actual memory that was? I can't remember. Not very. One megabyte, wasn't it? Right. Was it one meg? Probably. Yeah. Um, so some. This is one thing, of course, that again, people, younger folks, particularly, wouldn't. Not only did you have to buy a memory card to play most games there were some games that came out that didn't have memory card support at all um, particularly early on but there were also games that came out that needed one memory card per <laughs> game so if you uh, if striker you... with andy gray on commentary okay. 15 blocks XCOM, the original ufo uh enemy unknown ufo defense um yeah various others uh, so that was an issue. So as somebody who bought and played a lot of games, I bought this memory disk drive, Daytel memory drive, and um, and it was great until it failed me on XCOM and uh, corrupted a disk and lost my save. So cool idea, probably saved me a few quid, but ultimately it was a gamble. I've still got all my... I've still got at least eight um, 
PS1 memory cards. Ooh, yeah, I've got and one or I've two. Got, I pulled them out the other day, and I've got notes in with these <laughs> things. So for games like Parasite Eve 2, oh, right. uh, some of the Tomb Raiders, I've got puzzle solutions written down because when I would play them again, I thought, I'm not doing this again. I'll just write them down. And it's passwords to doors and that yeah. sort of stuff. And, and yeah, I've even got some little illustrations for like pattern codes that you had oh. to remember for Parasite Eve 2. And it's amazing how nostalgia mm. sort of like washes yeah. over you when you pull this stuff and you think, ah, yeah. It's like I used to write stuff down on these games. Yeah. yeah. I remember they all used to come in little plastic cases, didn't yeah. they? And they were really yeah. easy to lose. And you, then they started doing translucent ones in different colours. And then eventually you got third party ones yeah. that had like a little flicker switch because it had more meg. So you, you could flick it between what number memory, memory card yeah. it was. Mm. Yeah, see, I've got all the tra- I've, all the ones I've got are all translucent coloured, mm. and I've, on the list I've got I've I've got this list where I've got like blue, and then what's on the blue disc, orange, what's Clever. on the orange one, and that sort of thing. <laughs> so I know what's what by colour rather than the, yeah. Yeah, I just had a, a little box machine. that I I opened up when I was messing around with the PlayStation, and there was about seven memory cards in there, all of different things. No idea what's on which, so I started loading them in just for fun. Yeah, and yeah. obviously you had the standard yeah memory card. It was fine, still durable. Tell me what games were on there, and then I had the special knockoff versions. Oh yeah, and half of them were corrupted right now. So yeah. I don't know what were on there. It just goes to show, actually, you know, buying knockoff cards probably wasn't the way to go no. for years. Yeah, the official but were the, uh, a lot better even then. The one I re- there's a couple I like. One I've got a Resident Evil Three memory card. Um, and it's kind of got that it's a black yeah. memory card and it's like a decal and the Resident Evil 3 and it's kind of cool and then I've got this ridiculous like Carl said this one with a, a fat end to it where it goes in the console and this end must be about I don't know maybe an inch kind of wide it's just this huge thing with a, of a rocker switch on it completely mm. corrupted yeah. <laughs> so I have no idea yeah. what was on there but that's the idea of like well no I need more memory and oh, it's really expensive yeah. and yeah it was a different time wasn't it but it, it's yeah. It is, yeah. It's as I said earlier. It's like take the console, but not the memory cards, because that's where the important stuff was stored on those devices. And you could you could take it to friends' houses and stuff like that. It was such a a cool like, well, yeah. Let me bring my, all my unlocked characters in Tekken, mm. you know, and so you can you know, we can enjoy it together rather than let me bring the entirety of this machine. I suppose you could bring the cartridge around, but it's yeah. It just uh, uh I, I like those memory cards, but equally I yeah. Future generations—they're completely corrupted. And I have you no can idea. still create uh, virtual ones if you have a uh, PS3. Of course, it's not quite the same. I have one which I've possibly mentioned before. I certainly mentioned it on another podcast. Uh, the, my favourite single save file is my Puzzle Bobble Two Arcade Edition, or sorry, Buster Move Two, because it got renamed over here. Arcade Edition, which has is the only version of that game which has my favourite mode, which is Time Attack. Uh, even though it's the PAL version, sadly, it's. Uh, it's uh, basically, yeah, it's a, 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 I can't remember how many screens now, loads of screens where you have to complete them in the fastest time possible. And this was very popular among me and my friends. And you get to put your initials in if you set a time. And I think it saves a top five for every single screen. And on that screen, as well as my initials a lot, they're also the initials of friends from... 20 years ago that I've never seen since multiple girlfriends that I've got nothing to do with anymore uh, managed to get like one fast time on there and so they've put their initials in so it's like a real little treasure trove time capsule of of uh, of life so even though there might be um, you know better versions of Puzzle Bobble to play now that will remain my favourite forever 
Um, the discs we mentioned, but um, as well as uh, CDs being very slow to load, uh, the un- probably the most notable and unusual thing about PlayStation 1 CDs was that all the official ones were black rather than shiny, which meant it was very easy to spot a fake. Um, I'm not sure if there was a technical reason for this, whether it was just cool. I read somewhere there wasn't. There was no reason for the blackness at all, yeah. but other than obviously, you know, black discs weren't a thing that you could just pick up off the uh, off the high yeah. street. So it mm. was a copy protection in its own sense. But there was, mm. you know, as hence why CD players could read the disc. You know, it's yeah. you know yeah. there was no nothing unique about them. But that didn't stop me thinking they were super cool the first time I saw them. Yeah, but, al- really were. <laughs> but also they showed scratches on them. Scratches, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you get a second-hand disc from a store and you'd automatically just open up the case and, yeah, you could see if that disc was scratched or not yes. because it was really and sometimes obvious. they really were like so, yeah. some Honestly, of the taken a iron th- wool yeah I do to... wonder whether actually kids you know put one on either foot then drag themselves around the broom skiing on them and then put them in a case and Shaffened sell them a razor on yeah. A <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah yeah extraordinary uh, Joe Bobonobo from the forum says it's the demo discs that I remember most vividly about the PS1. My friend would buy the official PlayStation magazine every month with its free demo disc full of delights. This is what introduced me to some truly fun and unique titles such as Parappa the Rapper, Cooler World, Rival Schools, Klonoa and Tombi. I also saw the value of demos in that they were also a preemptive warning for games that were less than stellar such as the abysmal Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. Any demo disc memories? Yeah, I miss demo. There is part of me. You can download demos now. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? It seems to be a thing now where demos themselves seem to be a thing that has kind of dissipated over the years. Like, you know, now they've they've re they tend to rebrand them as um, betas or whatever, whatever. But it it Mm. it, you know there was there was something. I mean, more so for that generation because of the time that we would have to gestate on games that were being released in Japan. And then we'd have like six to 12 months wait. Mm. Um, And I remember in particular, you got games like Metal Gear Solid. I mean, they with MGS, they, they had that like a two stage demo that was released um, in, you know, six months out, we got this sort of, you got the first part where you went into the little vent from the helipad yeah. and that's where the demo ended. Yeah. And then like a few months out from the game, you got the the next section as oh, well. Right, yeah. And then it was just like, you know, you, it went all the way to the elevator and it was, I think that, that raised my anticipation yeah. to that game mm. to fever pitch. You know, you didn't get all that kind of stuff where it would necessarily say, you know, this might be slightly different from the finished version stuff. It was, it was in Japanese as well, which made it that bit much cooler. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, demo discs were like, you know, I mean, it's the thing because, like, even with um, Abe's Odyssey, you know, our first experience with that game was on a demo disc, and almost immediately, I'm like. When this game is out, I'm buying it. Some like, games demo much better than others, and oh, some yeah, developers sure. are much better at making a demo than others. Because yeah, some yeah. demos are still, I think, still do a terrible job of actually advertising the experience you're going to get. But sometimes we talked about the Crackdown demo earlier this mm. year, which was yeah. a clever, clever idea. But, uh, they actually did something to it. But I also think um, yeah, back, it's a, a time period because now, say, if you wanted to to look at a, a trailer of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, that's it's mm. fine. You just go and look at the trailer of Final Fantasy VII. What you would end up doing is having these magazines that would have all these images of Final Fantasy VII. Oh, oh man, I really want to. And then the next month, 
there'd be this trailer of the game yep. that you've just seen in static images. And it makes me sound mm. so old, yeah. but it, it's... Oh, you're right. It's FMV a trailers, massive yeah. thing yeah. to suddenly go from, well, I've seen still images, to here is this trailer with all the music and stuff. And that's why mm. trailers were so important then <gasps> for games as advertisements. Yeah. And then the one above it is, if you've got to play this stuff that you've <laughs> seen statically in a magazine, maybe you know months in advance, and yeah, it's a vertical slice. But... Now, if you want to see something, it's just a you know ten seconds. You can click away and find it, and you can probably find someone that's playing the for the entire it. game if you so yeah. so wish. It's... I mean, that's that's the thing. It was pre-YouTube, pre yeah. you know broadband, basically. So I mean, yeah. you know, we we had to rely on these things if you wanted to see. But you know, the, the difference was you know you you didn't have Games Master or whatever back. Back then, with a you know a cartridge on the front of the magazine saying "Play this, your latest yeah. Mega Drive." Like that stuff that is the fact that discs were so cheap, and they could produce this stuff. And they, I mean, the magazines were expensive, of course. You know, it was five six pounds back then. It's you know, it was expensive. It was five pound for the for the one with the demo on it. Yeah, yeah. so I mean yeah. that was, but it, and because you think about official magazines as well, yeah, you know, oh, official magazine. But back then, yeah, the official the magazine were. But uh, it had the demo disc. Like everybody yeah. brought the official magazines because they had the ability. I don't think I cared about so much what was in the magazine. It was the disc yeah. that was yeah. on the cover. Of course, we did have Games Master, the TV show at this period as well, um, just about, uh, which ran from 92 to 96 or something like that, maybe a bit longer. So we, there was some opportunity to occasionally see uh, games running and trailers, but it was obviously very much at their, you know, their discretion, whereas I remember getting the... Um, the Final Fantasy VIII intro on a uh, on a PS magazine cover disc and just watching it over and over and over again. Yeah, so many times. Um, so apart from the official one, which had the demos on, there was also Play magazine, which I remember being all right. Um, PSM was the uh, US import magazine, um, which uh, I used to go and get from Borders sometimes. See what was going on in. Uh, in across the Atlantic, um, PlayStation Power. I remember, uh, as usual, some there were some were EMAPs, some were Future, um, and yeah, one or two other long lost publishing houses. Any other magazines that you have fond memories of? Uh, PlayStation specific. Uh, yeah. I remember a great magazine called Arcade Magazine, which I fell in love yeah, with. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. that, but that's kind of, that that's was like 1998, yeah. was it? 99 when that started. Mm. It didn't last that long either. No, it, it only lasted like that was two or future. three years. Yeah. yeah. Dusk versus Tweak from the forum says, I was a Nintendo fan starting at the NES and the Nintendo 64 was like the second coming in my life. My love for the system made me somewhat of a toxic fanboy as I slowly taught myself to hate other video game consoles. My main target, the PlayStation. The conversations at school somehow always became Sony versus Nintendo. And coming from a house that could barely afford one console, the PlayStation was simply not on the cards. So I learned to turn my ignorance or jealousy into rage. When I was a teenager, I was finally able to get my own job and earn my own paycheck. At the time, the GameCube was not connecting with me, and I wasn't sure I wanted to spend money on it. Strange feeling for a Nintendo fan. However, I had a friend who needed some cash for new games, and he was offering to sell his PlayStation 1 with Final Fantasy IX for $100. Fighting back the existential crisis, I took him up on his offer. The PlayStation was a cool system, more mature and matching my teenage sensibilities. I don't think I would have appreciated its adult skewing games as a kid, which fueled my snobby attitude growing up. 
But as a teen who could buy his own games, titles like Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy IX, Dino Crisis and Chrono Cross seemed like a whole new world to me. Looking back, I feel I missed out on something, a maturing period of gaming. I wouldn't want to trade my Nintendo 64 memories for anything, but I wish I had a PlayStation ones to go along with them. Yes, I bought one and played great games, but I was very late to the party and all my friends were into the PS2 and Xbox. I've gone and still go back to play many of the games I've missed on the system, but its 90s attitude, coolness and maturity are something I can only relate to from others' stories. Interesting. We mentioned the rivalries in passing. Obviously, we don't want to get into, you know, why uh, too much, uh, you know, what the other systems had, because we'll do we'll do shows on those. But it was, uh, it yeah, I, I think we've covered it. We, it was it did feel like a that the the industry was shifting, and this you know the new guy, not a new name in terms of consumer electronics, but in this field, kind of came along and um, yeah, took everyone took everyone apart really and continued to do so in the next generation and other than the PS3 360 generation they kind of done it again this generation as well uh, switch notwithstanding so um yeah it was probably quite a good move for Sony to get into consoles I'm thinking uh Mickey Bim Bam <laughs> no Mikey Bam Bam <laughs> not me <Mickey. laughs> so close Mikey Bam Bam from the forum says growing up my dad had an independent music game shop music slash game shop and due to him dealing only in sega so did i having had the og master system and mega drive i eagerly waited for the sega saturn and soaked up all the info on it through various magazines of the time i was convinced this new playstation was a stupid waste of time and in the time of brand mascots it had a bandicoot what's a bandicoot rubbish i wanted arcade perfect virtua fighter my Saturn never arrived due to my dad's shop shutting, but we both kept interest in the Saturn and I was convinced it was the better console. 2D games, especially Capcom fighters, were better. Take that, PlayStation. But I didn't want 2D fighters. I wanted 3D. The arcade-perfect games just weren't. Something was wrong with Sega. Where was Sonic? This Bandicoot guy actually looked great. It was bright and colourful, just like my hero Sonic. There was a racing game called Wipeout, literally from the future. And Twisted Metal, a game for adults, maybe? A giant robot rabbit for reasons unknown apart from to blow my mind. Playing an early demo disc had me convinced I wanted a PlayStation. Could I possibly swear in front of my dad? Turns out I could, but it wasn't until August 1997. I got one with Tomb Raider. I spoke to my cool friend who had a chipped PlayStation and he said it was a good idea after further convincing me by showing me Resident Evil. However, I came unstuck in my local game. Did I want a memory card? My dad said no, for it was upselling and just a money-grabbing trick. Two weeks of only <laughs> playing the first few levels quickly convinced us otherwise. I loved my PlayStation and I was convinced it could never get better. My cousins also had one and sharing games meant for the time I'd play games I wasn't allowed or copy a save file to progress when I got stuck. Without them, I would never have finished Final Fantasy VII. Gran Turismo was real life, although I was a Ridge or Rage Racer boy. So many of today's great and not so great franchises started on PS1 and the introduction of the DualShock, which hasn't really changed in design in 20 years, is and was revolutionary. Memories of wires crossing my room to hook it up to my 14-inch CRT, especially when Time Crisis with a G-Con came out, are fond ones at the startup music runs deep. I even got into trouble after convincing my elderly nan to buy me a copy of official PlayStation magazine because it had a Resident Evil 2 demo on it. 
I'd say it was PlayStation's fault. I love games. I always liked them, and Sonic 2 is still my favourite. But with the PlayStation, it was real, or even hyper-real in some cases, and it blew everything, including the long-forgotten Saturn, out of the water. Arguably, there hasn't been as large of a jump since, and with my rose-tinted glasses on, Gran Turismo of PS1 still looks just as good on PS4, and that stupid Bandicoot was just as bright and colourful as he is now in 4K HDR on my Xbox One X. <laughs> it's it's quite funny how he talks about convincing uh, his elderly nan <laughs> to buy a copy of the official PlayStation magazine. I remember uh, my friend at the time, the one I actually went to Mallorca with, um, and he said that there was two games that he wanted uh, that were education-based. <laughs> One is about mathematical degrees, and the other is about storytelling. Yeah. And those games, I believe, were Cool Borders, which was the degrees, huh? uh, and Resident Evil 2 for creative storytelling. And they they completely bought it, so he got, he got those two games. Oh, I was expecting uh, you to come out result... with like puzzle games or something, but no. No, no, no. He, uh, he, went, he went the whole way, just completely lied. Um, you know, the fact that you can do like 720s uh, in Cool Borders. Degrees. That was yeah. uh, degrees, exactly. Mathematical. Genius. So, yeah, got away with it. Oh, yeah. I guess that was what replaced uh, I, need a, I need a Commodore 64 to do my homework on kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Kintaris. Also on the forum says the arrival of Sony's PlayStation in my life will be forever seared into my memory. Christmas Day in Dubai in a time before the state had been properly gentrified by billionaires. My family and I had been flown out by the bank my dad worked for and we hadn't seen him for several months. Christmas in a cold white apartment with 40 degree heat wilting a tiny plastic Christmas tree on a balcony overlooking a silent swimming pool. The city ground to a standstill as Ramadan began. Venturing into the streets felt like exploring a post-apocalyptic wasteland. My dad was trying to reconnect to sons that really hadn't seen him all that much recently and were now spending Christmas in the most un-Christmassy way possible. So he went big. I remember South Park plushies and Simpsons books. I remember a giant 3D foam puzzle of the Millennium Falcon. And I remember the PlayStation. This little light grey piece of plastic somehow containing the vibrant chaos of Crash Bandicoot. I still remember the first time the traditional side-scrolling platformer twisted around. Crash was running towards the screen, with a boulder crashing along behind him. And it wasn't the pixely quasi-3D of Sonic the Hedgehog 2 and 3's bonus stages. It felt like something much more real and intense. The new perspective blew my tiny mind, much like those early cinema-goers fleeing from a film of an oncoming train. I beat the game within a couple of days and we celebrated my success in an otherwise empty restaurant, attempting to eat a cake that I'd get for free if I finished it myself. The entire waiting staff stood around the table staring at me with interest and probably no small amount of hunger given that they and everyone else in the city was in the middle of a religious fast. The next day I personally haggled with an electronic salesman for a copy of Command and Conquer. He had no idea what it was, only that I desperately wanted it. I walked out with it for less than two pounds in today's money. Not bad for a ten-year-old, I thought. Meanwhile, my brother had found an unexploded grenade in the parking lot and terrified <laughs> the life out of my mother. We argued over who had had the most productive day while fighting over the controller as we took on the menacing brotherhood of Nod. I don't really remember the day I bought any other console, but the utterly bizarre circumstances around which I received my PlayStation will stay with me forever. I'm not surprised. So, yeah, we need to talk games. Obviously, we can't uh, just digress into a list of all the games that were on PlayStation. There are lots. So I've tried to pick out a few that I think were relevant. Um, 
feel free to chip in if I've missed anything. Um, so the Japanese launch titles included some stuff that you've you may have heard of but not ever paid much attention to but it included the Parodius uh, Deluxe Pack which was obviously a 2D concern from a yeah an older coin-op there were a couple of Ma Yong games uh, Ridge Racer uh, A4 Evolution that was a train thing as I recall because that did come out over here I think Crime Crackers sounds familiar can't remember um, but other than Ridge Racer I've not played any of those uh, Ridge Racer was probably the showpiece the centerpiece even though as you said guys uh battle arena tushinden got quite a lot of um demo pod play for some reason <laughs> i guess it was exciting uh rob 25x says two words come to my mind ridge racer although the ps1 had a huge library of classics nothing stood out for me throughout the console's life quite like ridge racer 1995 to 2000, the original game was rarely out of my console. As a young boy in the months before the PS1's release, I could not stay away from the arcade cabinet. When I finally got my PlayStation with Ridge Racer, I was amazed. It was incredible to see such a stunning looking game on a home console. There were many great races on PS1, uh, e.g. Wipeout 2097, and although there were many Ridge sequels that added more to the formula, the simplicity and arcade perfect <coughs> experience of the first game could not be beaten. Uh, it was an arcade perfect, Rob, I've got, I've got to tell you, but it was great. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Uh, so the US obviously came out sometime later with a very different uh, skewed launch lineup, uh, included some uh, things that you would expect, like uh, NBA Jam Tournament Edition, which has already come out on um, previous gen machines as well. The uh, marvellous Street Fighter, the movie, the game, the movie game. Um, Rayman, which was also kind of a conversion of a previous gen title. Is it? Was it? No, it wasn't. No, no. It just, no. Was what's, what's yeah. weird? Just Ray, like it. Yeah, what's weird with Rayman? And we'll talk about yeah. this, I'm sure. But it's because there's that whole issue about um, Sony not allowing, you know, what seemed like 2D platforms. Well, not, they did allow, but they were they, they didn't they didn't encourage it. I think, yeah, so Rayman the was there on launch, wasn't it? So yeah, it's it's one really of those well. weird ones that yeah, kind of slipped through the net, but just look super colourful because it was you know utilising the high color resolution. Color. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. Um, yeah, I've still got that one on on. Uh, on PSN, so and it does still, yeah, it, it's it's probably age better than any number of Polygon titles, in the same way as, uh, yeah, some of the other games that um, came out in Europe um, that were two D, um, and again, yeah, they may not have been encouraged by uh, by Sony, but they happened and they did well. Worms was one, for instance, the conversion, which was a conversion of a you know a computer game, um, and yeah, resolutely two D, uh, Rapid Reload, which was a Japanese game called Gunner's Heaven repackaged um yeah also probably looks better to our eyes now to for most people than say kiliak the blood or as it was previously known kiliak the dna imperative or was it kylak i always pronounce it kiliak i have no idea was that a first I person kiliak, was that an fps I, I think yeah mm. okay yeah. i, I think remember. i always pronounced it wrong i think there is a way i think it is something like kiliak oh okay but I always pronounced it Kiliak. Anyway, yeah. What what has uh, been quite unusual is to see very different launch lineups for each you know region. Um, oh yeah, you know, totally think tailored, that it'd just yeah. be like, well, we have all these games. Let's get the, that's the traditional format mm. now. It's just anything and anything get it out there. But it's you know it's uh, obviously they're tailored for each individual yeah. market. But you'd think you know there's stuff there that is in the US uh, launch mm. lineup that it would make mm. sense to be within Europe, but 
Okay. Yeah, Power Serve, 3D Tennis, ESPN Extreme Games, which did come out very soon after launch here, um, for sure. Um, yeah, Ridge Racer and, of course, Wipeout, which was a homegrown product by Cygnosis. And, um, yeah, it was one of the games that was kind of, you know, made PlayStation seem cool with its soundtrack. Um, certainly after I got Tekken 1 and Doom with my first console, Ridge Racer and Wipeout were the two of the very first games that I added to my collection. Uh, I I have to say before we run into a list of titles, the PlayStation for me is a weird console of looking back with because you know we've always talked about oh well you know the mind's eye you know what did why it looked so good back then and mm-hmm. it is one of those machines that you tend to go back and we've done a lot of games on this show um, yes but we haven't done huge amounts of stuff on the PlayStation world because I no. think some of the stuff really hasn't aged well and I can only think of. Um, a couple of recent examples, one of them being um, Tenchu, which, mm-hmm. you know, in my mind's eye was this brilliant, um, you know, ninja stealth game. Mm. And, you know, a lot of issues of that game is the fact that, you know, it's you know, digital control and, um, you know, draw distance and clipping and, you know, some of the, uh, the AI is horrendous and stuff. But that's not what I remember from playing it back then. And the reality is the limitations of the console other things that probably are holding that game back and yeah that's i mean that's not to say that every single playstation game is like that because quite frankly they're not and there's some absolutely stone gold classics here but there is a lot of games that i looked that are you know yeah are kind of that middling ground and certainly some of the earlier titles where really you go back to them and go wow this this is feeling like almost an experimental 3d technology (laughs) which it was but back then Mm. it it was exciting where now it's we put maybe we perfected it but we have become so used to you know cameras behaving the way they should do and it was a minefield of people just experimenting with that stuff control Mm. schemes which make no fundamental sense to us whatsoever now um you know were there because there was no kind of template and so there was a lot there was a lot of experimenting going on on the playstation originally and i think that stuff settled down but it's also some of the stuff that made other games so exciting because we hadn't actually seen you know some of the stuff they were doing so mm. what's interesting is to see how many of these games that started on the playstation oh, yeah. that are still going to this day like you know i'm looking at the list there we've got like you know i know it wasn't necessarily a, a, a an exclusive playstation game but tomb raider wipeout resident evil gran turismo final you know the the dc the, the, they're still going <laughs> And that that in the you know that kind of I mean that's down to the games more than it is to the console, but it, it it makes me wonder that if that first those first iterations the first games in this this series, or with the exception of Final Fantasy, obviously, but if they hadn't have been if it hadn't have been a stronger platform to launch on, whether you know whether that might have changed along the way. There, there's the mm. building blocks of the modern day industry, mm. I think. Um, you know, contained within that early library, and um, and I think even with things like Tenchu, I mean, I remember, I mean, I've still got my games after all. I lent one of them Darren to cuss off on the on the podcast, but um, it it it's interesting. What interests me with that is that it makes me think that although those games were janky and they they were janky then, and the you know they haven't aged well at all, that they've influenced other things along the way that those yeah. games have, have there's a lineage from that to you i mean you can see even when you're watching was it uh sekiro 
the new From Software game, you're looking at that and, and people have referenced Tenchu left, right and centre on that game. And it's just, you know, there's something in, in, you know, the way he traverses around the thing is definitely reminiscent of that. And it does make me think that maybe, you know, that those games were influential in their own way. It may have taken 20 years mm. for the influence to start, uh, I th- you know. I think also that there was huge uptake in third-party support um, mm. and Sony allowing that. Obviously, you know, Nintendo uh, have always produced just you know fantastic first-party stuff, but I think, you know, the prohibited cost of producing stuff on cartridges and whatnot oh, and their kind yeah. of restrictive nature of getting the, on to those platforms is a traditional the cut sense. the developers were getting and the publishers were getting was yeah, massive so because the, con- the games stayed the same price, but the pr- price of actually making them was, yeah. had plummeted. I mean, the price of physically making them, not developing the games, because that had gone up, but the price of actually manufacturing multiple copies of games had massively reduced so yeah and, yeah, and the world had changed in a way and i think of the playstation as a, an, an era of you know th- caching games almost you know the, the time when <laughs> when the people had to make games based on films and, and whatnot and it's i mean that would definitely happen in playstation 2 even more to a degree but it it seemed to be this this whole industry realizing actually we could make money from these gamers and not just you know as a kid's appeal as a you know an adult appeal here you know people have got disposable money let's aim this at them and yeah i mean i i I've jotted down a few ones that are you know i think for me are slightly off kilter that aren't the obvious ones because you know everyone can think of well let's see if Metal we uh, touch upon them yeah. in uh, in the ones that i've called out and then if we've missed anything off we'll, we'll uh, i'll say I'll, I'll ask you at the panelists at the end to see if there's anything that particularly was uh, was special to you so the first key titles that i wanted to mention these are the ones that basically sold the most and defined uh, the system would have been the Crash Bandicoot, Final Fantasy, Gran Turismo, Resident Evil, Tomb Raider and Wipeout series. Uh, they sold a lot of copies between them and were very important. Uh, before we move on to others, we'll hear from Jobo Bonobo, who says it cannot be underestimated the effect the PS1 had on gaming as a whole. As we were just saying, for one thing, it made video games a lot more appealing to the general public as its huge variety of titles made sure no matter what your taste, the PlayStation was the console for you. Among this variety of titles were games such as Resident Evil, Tenchu, Grand Theft Auto, Tomb Raider and many more that showed that games were growing up and that they were no longer the domain of kids and or nerdy introverts. Also of note was that genres that were considered niche fully entered the mainstream such as survival, horror, stealth and especially noteworthy the JRPG. Before Final Fantasy VII, Europe had little contact with the JRPG and if it was not for its success it's likely that European gamers would still consider them a bizarre little curiosity and would remain stuck in the dark ages where these games would never bless our shores. While the magic of the graphics has diminished over time in this era of 4K, many games on the system still hold up wonderfully and I would happily recommend them to anyone who learns to adjust their eyes to those blocky polygons. For me personally, while certain games such as Tomb Raider have aged dramatically graphics-wise, other titles such as Parappa and Ape Escape are still quite pleasant to look at. I find that the less realistic the graphics in this era, the better they hold up, which is an observation that can equally be applied to the N64. While the Mega Drive was what nurtured my love of video games, it was the PS1 with its 3D graphics and new gameplay that this enabled that convinced me that games were to have a great and exciting future and to stick around for the ride. So Sony released some stuff themselves, uh, either first, second or third party, the Gran Turismo games in association with Polyphony Digital. Uh, obviously, there were only actually two Gran Turismo games on PS1. 
Um, they were both, uh, yeah, hugely hyped and well reviewed and sold lots of copies. Parappa, which was by Nana on Shah. The Twisted Metal Games. I'm not sure how many of those there were on PS1. Was it just a couple? Uh, Ape Escape and uh, Wild Arms, which was Sony produced JRPG series. Uh, also coming to the PlayStation Mini because they've got the rights because it's theirs. Um, Cygnosis, who ended up being absorbed by uh, Sony ultimately became Sony Liverpool. Um, not only the Wipeout series, but um, I remember the first couple of Formula One games where they got the official license were huge. Oh yes, massive deal, weren't they? Um, they, they really were. Yeah, they were, they were. They were kind of on the background of every mm. uh, television screen in the game. In like game and mm. electronics boutique for the longest. I went time. to a midnight launch for the first one, and I don't even like Formula One, so that's <laughs> that's how big that was. Uh, Psychosis did some other stuff uh, like the Adventures of Lomax, which is a bit of a, a cult classic, uh, as well as uh, the obviously Metal Gear Solid series. Um, there were some other uh, action series which sort of started here uh tenchu you mentioned siphon filter was quite a big deal as well um yeah, i played I, I, the two of those mm, fond memories yeah yeah i mean I, I i played the hell out of them at the time yeah. um they are similar in the sense of tenchu in that you go back now mm. and it's like wow they've aged mm. uh, medal of honor of course started as a ps1 thing um and yeah, first-person shooters. Um, there were a few on uh, on PS1, as well as uh, Doom, obviously. Uh, we had, uh, what was that game early on? Disruptor. And that was by somebody who went on to be... Who, which studio was Disruptor? Uh, it was by Insomniac. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, they've just had a little hit with a game called Marvel's Spider-Man. Um, yeah. Capcom, obviously, the Resident Evil series, or at least uh, three entries into it. Um, and, of course, I think fondly remembered, certainly, the first uh, couple of Dino Crisis games. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think some people on our forum have gone back recently to the first one and said, mm, not so much. But, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, dinosaurs, less scary kind of thing. But, uh, but there you go. Um, Konami were a massive supporter, and I think... Uh, I mean, they were amazing on the 16-bit consoles as well um, and the 8-bits. And uh, sadly, yeah, uh, perhaps going things are going south for gamers' relationship with Konami now. But in the PS1 era, not only did we have Metal Gear Solid, lest we forget the DDR series had a massive boom in the late 90s. Um, and before we Fit, dance mats were a craze for a while. Yep. I had one. In fact, yep. I think it's still in the loft mm. at my parents' house. Yeah, everybody had a dance mat one Christmas, didn't they? Um, but they also released some more cult classic stuff like Vandal Hearts, which was a, a turn-based uh, Japanese strategy game, obviously. Uh, Suikoden 1 and 2, uh, cult classic JRPGs. Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which we did a podcast yeah. on. Uh, Metal Gear Solid. The ISS Pro games already mentioned, which obviously turned into the Pro Evo series, which is still just about going today. And we've already mentioned it as well. Silent Hill, their own very uh, J-horror uh, take on survival horror. Yeah, amazing lineup. Namco as well. The Ridge Racer series, obviously three Tekken games. Uh, each one kind of, you know, smashed the last one uh, out of the park. Uh, Soul Edge or Soul Blade, as it became known. We covered that fairly recently on a podcast, uh, issue 316. Um, the Klonoa uh, 
things started here. Moved on to other consoles, GBA, PS2, uh, the remake for the Wii, a game that we sometimes um, get requested to do. Square, of course, the Final Fantasy series, or three of them anyway, had already been running for multiple generations and sequels, but uh, this was where it came to Europe, at least, um, and sold a lot of copies. We are covering that series currently. We will be covering Final Fantasy VII at the end of the year. Already mentioned Final Fantasy Tactics, Chrono Cross, Xenogears was another game that never came out in Europe, along with Einhander, Parasite Eve. Had my uh, imported Vagrant's... version of Zeno Gears, paid a lot of money for that. <laughs> yeah, to, to press cross a lot on mm-hmm. disc two, uh, the famously unfinished uh, Vagrant story did come out over here and is uh, yeah, a technical marvel really for the system. Um, Bushido Blade, another kind of cult classic. I don't, never played that, but I know a lot of people. Jay, that sounds like your kind of thing. It's like Forerunner, Honor, I guess, by today's modern standards. Oh, what, Bushido Blade? Yeah. No? Um, no, for some reason, oh, okay. no. No. Uh, Parasite Eve you did play though I played the sequel oh okay because that was the only one we got over here yeah, that yeah. was the first one I played yeah. the first one oh. very very good oh okay yeah yes um, and Air Guides which was uh, not so well received but was uh, was an interesting it was actually an arcade game as well coin-op um, but the home version featured Cloud out of Final Fantasy um, from the mainstream point of view, I don't think uh, you can underestimate how important sports games were to the PlayStation's sort of ongoing success, because certainly all my friends at work, as well as ISS Pro, after I'd converted them from FIFA, obviously FIFA went from, was it 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, and I think 2002 even possibly on the PS1, maybe even later. Um so that was a big deal. Obviously, the Madden games and NHL games went from being sprite-based to polygonal. Yeah. Um, they made, I think, actually, the the Madden and NHL games made the leap a bit more successfully than FIFA did um, with some actually sort of better-received games early on. Yeah, some AI that didn't feel like it was appalling. Yeah. Like beating keepers from the halfway line in FIFA 97. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, FIFA 97 was probably the nadir of that series for many. Uh, PGA, Tiger Woods series, um, kind of, uh, yeah, did well. Uh, NBA Live as well for EA. NBA Live 97 was an absolute gem of a game. Okay. Um, And... Again, developed uh, in the UK, the Colin McRae series and Toker as well, the touring cars games. They were pretty. Oh. They were pretty huge and and well liked. Toker two was absolutely superb. That was one of the ones that we played a lot mm. um, in in my circle, and it was kind of uh, if you could get a, a link cable, it worked incredibly oh, yeah, yeah, well. Yeah. I was Toker two. I was going to really say that I was on a my, steering uh... wheel for that. One of my offshoot games, yeah, Toker was just yeah, mm. really. I mean, at the time, just really kind of a violent. Um, racing game just there were so many onto, car yeah. games that obviously we yeah, haven't yeah. listed mine, here mine yeah, had to tons. be uh, I think early on in that uh, was V-Rally yeah oh, of oh, course V-Rally yeah God. that was I big I was just deal. looking at that a new one's just come out hasn't it a new V-Rally mm. just came out like two weeks uh, ago Destruction weeks Derby ago. I yeah Psygnosis again of course yeah adored yeah. that Roll Cage which is no, no one ever really yes. talks about I absolutely adored Sy- that as well <laughs> it was on Psygnosis as well yeah, yeah. Well, there we there's go. a spiritual yeah. successor to Roll Cage uh, still still in development apparently Roll Cage was a strange one in that the Playstation version actually had an entirely different soundtrack to other versions of it oh, Okay. Um, so on the PC it mm. had none of the music whether or not it was licensed mm. by Sony Music I'm not sure so. but I remember the PC version looked great mm. Mm. Had no atmosphere. Another well. game I've gone back going. to a years past, and yes, that that has a frame rate. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I believe um, Kane Rince, Foramite, Glenn, Mr. Flabio worked on Roll Cage Stage 2 in some capacity, or he worked in the same studio as it anyway. But um, yeah, um, Brian Lara Cricket, again, you might think, eh, but mm. all my friends at work played the, yeah. like I'm, I don't like cricket so I had no interest but all my buddies in the summer were obsessed with Brian Lara cricket they were having Jonah Jonah Lomar and Jonah Lomarubi as, well. as well yeah yeah um and the uh Minona golf or aka hot shots golf aka everybody's golf series started on uh, ps1 as well with the first two games in that series um massive in japan i think or well maybe not massive Still but going big. strong now isn't yeah, it really? yeah ps4 version well worth getting as we've said 3d fighting games battle arena toshin den uh was around at the start and did that thing that launch games do of getting perhaps more attention than it, it really warranted um the ps1 also got a port of dead or alive which was different to the saturn version and different to the arcade in that it used a completely different sort of shading and, and graphic style, but um, but basically played the same. Um, had the wobbly breasts, but wasn't quite so, didn't feel quite so um, offensively pervy as recent examples in the series. Um, Bloody Raw, another cult classic from Hudson, uh, the fighting mm-hmm. game in which you turned into animals. Uh, the Tekken trilogy we mentioned, um, there were plenty more. JRPGs, uh, yeah, so as well as the Final Fantasy thing happening and Chrono Cross, another American, a, non, a non-European release. Uh, Alundra came out over here and was incredibly hard, but I remember a lot of PlayStation game, gamers sort of saying, this is our Zelda, and I think it has a, a bit of a cult following to this day. Uh, Grandia did get a PlayStation conversion from Saturn. Star Ocean Games and the Dragon Crest Games, which again, I don't think made it to Europe because we just weren't ready. Uh, arcade game conversions, well, again, Ridge Racer and Tekken. Um, obviously, there was a lot of Capcom 2D stuff, but the place to play that, and, you know, apart from Street Fighter Alpha 3, which uh, which was a pretty damn amazing PS1 port, generally the place to play those was the Saturn, if you had the option. Yeah. Another genre that was massive, and I suppose it followed on from all the 16-bit cartoon platformers, but Again, a huge. Even though we're talking about the maturing maturity of games and stuff, the comedy cartoon character platformers were massive on PS One. Like Crash Bandicoot was huge. Spyro the Dragon was huge. Croc by Argonaut again oh. was a huge seller, even though it didn't review particularly well at all. Gex same. Pandemonium same. I love Pandemonium. It's yeah. everyone, you know. Everyone has those weird guilty pleasures, and Pandemonium one and one and two. Man, I paid huge amounts of time in those games and yeah really really enjoyable just colorful ridiculous and once again just don't go back to it because mm. <laughs> because they haven't yeah, aged yeah. well uh in the same in the same vein medieval um absolutely yes yeah, sony products as yeah, well, yeah yeah i loved loved that um, uk made yeah mm. so yeah you are right there was a lot of 3d platformers um yeah i really skipped all of these i just wasn't in i just preferred 2d 16-bit style platformers i just um or or n64 games <laughs> so yeah i didn't wasn't yeah i always felt like that's what they were chasing though wasn't it they were chasing mario. their 3d equivalent of the 2d mario and then they were chasing especially croc because that was sony's mario 64 yeah and um, they were definitely chasing that yeah and of course argonaut you know, had already worked with role. nintendo um before they made croc hadn't they so yeah mm. yeah i think i i mean i had Crash Bandicoot simply because I, I bought the console as a bundle when I eventually picked yeah, one. Yeah, not up. your sort of thing normally, Joe. 
No, I avoided all those games like the plague, and I think I even got rid of Crash pretty quickly because it just wasn't my bag. I mean, during the PlayStation era, I was like between twenty-five and thirty, so I was going for the Resident Evils, yeah. the, the the you know, the Soul Reavers. I'm those forty-six. Games I'm still playing QC just... platformers. Nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that was of course a Sony uh, released item then by Naughty Dog. But since then, it's changed developers and labels, hasn't it? It's now is it. Crystal Dynamics and Activision now or something they released the the insane trilogy pack that sold ridiculously well something something different I'm, I mean I must say of those games Spyro the Dragon was actually really quite good and I am looking forward to the remake um, when I started my new job I actually had a work colleague come up because he'd heard that I was doing a podcast mm. about games and he said oh I said, oh, we've done like loads. We've been going for like seven years. Mm-hmm. We've got over 300 ones. You went, you must have done Spiral <laughs> Dragon. I was like, oh, right, okay. No, I did it. Yeah, I... that's it. Choose one straight away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, they're on the list. There's a lot of games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think it, it's easy to forget sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, Adam Capone uh, tweeted to us to say, you'll catch up one day. And I was like, that doesn't work. No. The, the maths, the maths, up, maths on that don't add up. Um, Spacefarer says, I got my PlayStation quite late on, considering the games I had for it, which we'll get onto, I'd say it was around 2001 or 2002, by which point the PS2 was at large. My first encounter with the system was at my friend's house, where we played a variety of games. Among them were Crash Team Racing, Tony Hawk's Skateboarding, and some corny vehicular combat game called Grudge Warriors. Anyone? No. Uh, up, until that, <laughs> up until that point, I'd been a proud member of the PC Master Race, but this rinky-dink grey box had managed to sway me. Crash Team Racing was the standout from that lot, so naturally I had to have a PlayStation of my own. Obviously, Jazz Jackrabbit 2 wasn't pushing the right buttons anymore. Plus, my dad was probably fed up me constantly destroying his computer. If I was going to break something, I might as well break my own thing, right? I was enamoured by the packaging. I remember spending ages staring at the back of the box, drinking in all the screenshots of the various games that were were available on launch. Side note, not sure why I was looking at the box instead of, you know, playing. Being about six years old and being used to shareware discs containing tons of games, I assumed that they all came with the system. Not so. The games I remember getting with it were Wipeout 2097, Gran Turismo 2, Battle Tanks Global Assault, Tomb Raider, Grand Theft Auto, and the one I played almost exclusively, Crash Bandicoot. The orange marsupial practically replaced my favourite green bunny at that point. I loved Crash. I spent hours upon hours playing it in my parents' bedroom. Evidently, I wasn't allowed to use the big telly downstairs, so I used my mum's postage stamp-sized CRT, which wouldn't work unless a specifically shaped splinter of wood was jammed into the power switch. (laughs) Sounds safe. Didn't matter. I played it, and I never got very far in it. Later on, I ended up with all the other Crash games. My dad took me and my brother to a second-hand shop, and that's where I got my own copy of CTR, as well as Lego Racers, an old PC favourite of mine. My brother walked away with Crash 3, and the obsession began again. I didn't end up getting Crash 2 until 2008, as a reward for earning a black belt in karate. Somewhere in this train wreck of a timeline, there's a Spyro-shaped hole. Spyro Year of the Dragon was another of my favourites, and remains so, alongside Crash. I also picked up the first Spyro game somewhere along the line, and while I played a decent amount of it, it's the sort of series you really need to play in order. Playing the third one just meant I was a bit disappointed with the first. Again, I didn't get the second one until very recently, when my mum got it me for my birthday a few years ago. So, all in all, I had a ton of fun with the PlayStation. I got a lot out of it, and its wibbly polygons and blocky textures are still charming to this day. 
It's given me some wonderful memories, introduced me to some of my absolute favourite games and characters ever, and I continue to find new awesome games for it even now. Continuing our quick rundown, uh, the there were this was really the start of retro collections becoming more of a thing. Although they had existed on previous gen, this was where they could uh, pretty much the power um, had the power of the systems and the CD medium to fit more on the on the compilations and more accurately emulate emulate uh, the old arcade machines. So we got the uh, the Namco Museum series here and the Williams Atari series, uh, all digital Eclipse curated. Um, Atari did really well apparently out of re-releasing games like Frogger and Pong but remaking them for PlayStation um, in polygons and um, you know people of a certain age liked the recognisable IPs and apparently these were quite enjoyable um, you know sort of novelty game affairs I think they might have been released at sort of mid-price as well um, computer game conversions were a thing of course so we you know we got populous the beginning and syndicate wars doom as we said worms true pinball which was a conversion effectively of pinball illusions um, by the people we now know as dice uh, and of course the original grand theft auto came out on playstation one i think exactly the same time as the pc version give or take but it was a it was a compromised port shall we say um the lack of ram was the main issue i believe in that uh, the original PC version would remember where you left cars and things like that, whereas the PS1 version, if it went off the screen, uh, <laughs> yeah. that was it. But you know, it had a much higher repetition of other vehicles sure. as well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I say, 2D successes as well as Rayman and, and Street Fighter Alpha Three, some of the uh, perhaps uh, yeah highest regarded 2D stuff. Mickey's Wild Adventure, which I know Tony went back and played not so long ago and thought was terrible. Um, but it was it was a real big hit. It um, like Rayman, it stayed in the charts for years. Um, it was the game that was known as Mickey Mania on Mega Drive and, and Super Nintendo. I don't know why they re renamed it. Uh, maybe Mania has a negative association. So Mickey's Wild Adventure. But yeah, Tony, you uh, you said it it didn't play so good now. Yeah, Traveller's Tales, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I was trying <laughs> trying to play it and show my kids. Some stuff of uh, history past, and you know, it was frustrating. So that yeah. was all. Um, Visuals good though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, honorable mentions and cult classics. Uh, we've already mentioned Crash Team Racing and Destruction Derby. Um, I just it sort of stood out to me that Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was a PS One game. Um, it was quite late, I think. When did the film come out? Like two thousand and one, something like that. Yeah, some. Um, yeah. But the reason it's it's worth mentioning is because it's one of the best selling games on the PS One. <laughs> Um, Even that late into the, the console. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Driver was a huge yeah. deal. Reflections, oh, uh, first yeah. driver. Um, this also coincided with a sort of retail price war where PlayStation 1 games dropped from 45 or 40 to 30 pounds. And Driver was, I think, the main recipient of that. And it sold a ton. It's got the legendary tutorial level. That yes, a lot many of people, people can't never, get got past, <laughs> never, never got past yeah. the tutorial. Yeah. I remember being blown away by this game. Yeah, first, so first cool. Day. Hubcaps come off the, the cars, man. Yeah, and the, like, the whole kind of cinematic camera <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that. It was just, oh, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. action camera was, mm. uh, first time I saw that, yeah. I was shocked. Like, it was unbelievable to see that. But, um, and once again, this goes back to your point about, you know, games over the, the period of the, the consoles, you know, not, not to say that there wasn't some fantastically designed and, and well-made and beautiful looking games early on, but as that system got older and older, there's some stuff at the back end that you're like, wow, how is that a PS, PS1? It's mm. crazy. Mm. 
Driver 2 was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? Uh, they they added the ability to get out the car, but it, I remember it being just apparently, I didn't play it because it reviewed so poorly, um, but it was, yeah, apparently a buggy, buggy and frustrating mess, sadly. Uh, another technical tour de force, I think, was uh, Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver. Mm. We covered that uh, last volume, Kane and Rinse 279. Uh, I think people said it had aged, but were still fairly kind about it, given that. We mentioned Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey, which was followed up, I think, the very next year by Abe's Exodus, which yeah. was effectively a, a kind of a, 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 an adjunct to the story and a level set, wasn't it, with a few few features. But it was uh, very much a quick, we've sold a ton of this one, let's make another <laughs> one for next Christmas. And this was a game where, um, as well as all those people I've mentioned saying, they all had all the sports games. They had Brian Lara cricket, they had the golf. This was the game that um, a lot of their partners had. <laughs> it's like my friend Neil, he had Brian Lara cricket, he had uh, whatever football game. And Kath, his partner, had Abe's Odyssey. It was like that's that's how it works, and I don't think he was the only one either. Where that was the sort of the dynamic in the household. I I, I genuinely loved those games. Mm. I think they were incredible. I remember, even I mean, admittedly, they're showing their age now when you look at the visuals of as as are so many of Thankfully, them. Thankfully, there's an HD uh, remaster of exactly, Odyssey, of but I do remember it just felt completely well. It looked completely unlike every mm. other. PlayStation game at the time yeah. that I was seeing, there was something of an almost stop motion, oh yeah, uh, animation quality to it. Which I, I mean, mm. that in itself was it was the animation on the characters, the kind of idle animations, the way you would scratch the back of his head yeah. and, and stuff like that. That stuff genuinely and the like, integration left- of FMV in the levels and yeah. stuff as well was was impressive. Um, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater actually debuted on ps1 of course um converted far and wide and in fact two and three in that series also made it to ps1 even though that from two onwards they were also a next gen series because um came to dreamcast didn't it tony hawks pro skater 2 um tony hawks pro skater 1 is missing some of the fundamental uh things that everyone went on to adore about tony hawks pro skater the manual uh, the manuals the manual. basically yeah. um but yeah without without tony hawks pro skater one and i remember having fun with the demo of that you could play the horse mode just an unbelievable juggernaut of a game tony hawks pro skater like that was for the like a whole year of school the game right. that people talk about on it. the playground yeah going around houses and playing it and yeah it was like of all things PlayStation, that's kind of that isn't a a, a mainline mm. exclusive. That's the game that I think of yeah. when I associate with PlayStation. You, you know, a game's got you bad when you're walking around going, "I could grind that. I yeah, could grind yeah. that building. Yeah. I could do that. Yeah, that gutter. Working Absolutely. out your lines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, and last honourable mention. Now, this wasn't particularly good. I wouldn't have said uh, it was a very limited experience, especially given the the lack of an actual prize, but. This was a Christmas number one, if I recall correctly. Um, When the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire arrived on our screens, uh, it was huge. And a game came out opportunistically in time for Christmas and sold millions, I think. Um, And yeah, I I definitely played somebody else's copy of it. And, you know, it's like playing a pub trivia game where you can't win any money. (laughs) But people bought it. Filled the shelves of every second-hand game shop as yeah, well. Yeah, you can. Yeah, but it, it, it. to me, it's like that. It's the, the perfect Christmas game, isn't it? Where you've got your family there, and it's like rather than pulling out the Trivial Pursuit, mm. or whatever, you just put the disc. It probably opened the doors play. for Buzz, which was a 
another yeah. kind of craze on the next gen, wasn't it? Once again, mm. it's that that whole justification to a different audience that had never, you know, had just seen them as kids' things, and suddenly there you are playing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in in your living room rather than you know yeah. Mario, which you know, of course, I'd rather be playing Mario, but you know, other people yeah. wouldn't. So it was just that. I'd rather open... be playing Resident Evil. <laughs> well, yeah. And the actual on-screen visuals, although they were lower resolution, actually sort of resembled what you what you were seeing on the on the TV digital graphics. So it was yeah, it had that sort of novelty factor. Um, yeah. Well, uh, so before we have a little check in with some uh, Hall of Shame turkeys, um, thinking about the PlayStation Classic Five game, the Mini that's coming out December two thousand eighteen, which is a couple of months away at the time of recording, um, what? Other than the five games that have already been announced, would you put on? And what are these uh, ones that, uh, Tony, first you, that, that I didn't mention that you think deserve a mention from your point of view? Well, you've mentioned quite a few, Pandemonium, etc. Um, there's a weird one, Jet Moto, which is... Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, once again, not a great game by now, but it was certainly fun. Jet um, Moto 2, I believe, was a PS Plus game some years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because there's a lot of licensed stuff that you just know won't make it onto that device unless they do a lot of... Of course, uh, yeah. Assume for this conversation that uh, that licensing is, is not an issue. Um, I think we've... I, I love Die Hard Trilogy, which I don't know if we've mentioned too much. Uh, hmm. It's like a free game... Sort of compilation, yeah, compilation action, driving and... Driving, uh, it was very shooting. violent, violent yeah. and bloody, and I loved it for that at the time. Uh, yeah. Actual soccer, Addy has power soccer as well. There's oh, like, actual soccer, which was... Yeah. I thought, I think it was awful, mm. but... I was desperate for that game to come yeah. out before yeah. before our new games were released on Fridays. I used to go into my local friendly independent game shop like every day after work, going, "Is Actua Soccer out yet? Is Actua Soccer out yet?" Um, and then I got it, and it was like, oh. and I still bought the sequels, which were slightly less oh. yeah, stuff like Fear Effect, which we haven't really talked about. Like, I love that as well. And um... well, that was the game I wanted to bring oh, cool. up earlier. That was that was incredible to me the technical side of that game yeah like full motion video backgrounds mm. and you know and you were playing i mean i've still got my copy of it it's just it, it i yeah it's and it's a real well that and the sequel really oddities oddity in a sense in the uh, in that they were really pushing this kind of different approach to the to the technology and uh, yeah and it wasn't a bad game the first one i really enjoyed mm. it um, yeah, yeah. It's just that kind was their of... penultimate. That studio uh, arrived in '95 uh, with uh, Criticom um, for the PS1 and Saturn, which didn't make much of a splash. And then uh, after Fear Effect Two, that was it. Mm. They were done. Yeah, it's like a four-disc beast as well, isn't it? Yeah, so it's just another one I imported. Must have been expensive to make. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's uh, f- license-free freeware now. I don't know. Um, mm. Maybe it could end up on the. Uh, it was IDOS, wasn't it? So, who knows? Yeah. Is it does Square own the Fear Effect? I, I think I didn't suspect it. they do. Well, yeah, they, so one, they did. There was a Fear yeah. Effect game released yeah. recently, which was like a isometricy mm-hmm. kind of, almost like a Hitman Go type situation that they. Hmm. Well, totally like it felt like it was connected only in that they used the characters and the name. It could end up on the on the mini. Um, if it's Square, they certainly had some stuff mm. on the NES and or SNES certainly. So who knows? But other stuff is like Smash Court Tennis and Rage Racer, which you know is the yeah yeah yeah. But um, yeah, what makes it onto that compilation? And, I, and there's so many obvious ones because as we've said, there's there's just some you know 
beginnings of series that are incredibly important. I think if I was just to pick, you know, what was my favourite PlayStation One game and, and would it be on there? It would be Metal Gear Solid. Mm. So, you know, that's got to be on there, hasn't it? I think as a lot of people would be very disappointed <laughs> if it wasn't. It depends where Konami sit. I yeah, guess. depends how much Sony. Well, they like to... money right now. <laughs> yeah. So. They need to make a downloadable version of it and you can just install the games on the catalogue or something. That's what they need to do with that. Unfortunately, that's not the case. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, the Mini, the PlayStation Classic Mini is as easily hackable as the <laughs> Nintendo <laughs> versions. Well, yeah. Well, then what close. about you, Liam? What would be your, your game that has to go on there? Well, Puzzle Bobble uh, 2, oh. uh, Buster Move Arcade <laughs> Edition. Um, I'm trying to think what ones I've ended up keeping. Um, obviously, Ape Escape would be a good one, but it can't be on there because you need a you need a twin analog <laughs> stick. Um, yeah, Einhander, Final Fantasy Tactics. Although I suppose a lot of these games have now had, like Final Fantasy, have had kind of revised versions that are probably more worth playing now. Well, I've been a Sony device. You would imagine Gran Turismo is at least one. Well, yeah, could be on I there. Think- I think it, personally, I, and I did mention this the other day, and and somebody on the forum said no, they could, they still enjoy playing Gran Turismo. But personally, I think driving games, particularly that era, are very hard to go back to and yeah. enjoy. Um, oh. And again, you've got deep had issues with Gran Turismo. I'd, I'd take a Vib ribbon, put that on there. Yeah, well, that, you know, I was gonna say there's a, there's a, at least two titles that even to this day, I mean. It's not like I, uh, if I really, really wanted them, I'd, I'd go on eBay yeah. and hunt them down. Yeah. But there are two titles that I said, if I ever see them here in a shop, uh, be it a retro game shop, or even if I'm in Japan and I see these things, I'm tempted to grab them just because uh, one is Vib Ribbon and the other is Cooler World. Yeah. Because I played yeah, the that's demo. that's what I was going to mention. I loved the demo of Cooler World and it came out just as I, it came out around about that period where I'd moved to it's I'd like just two moved. pound on PS3 seriously yeah I've wh- really yeah, it's been there <laughs> since about 2007 <laughs> I've totally missed that because I I loved that demo as is Kurishi that, Final oh it was such a good game good god I'm gonna have to go and buy that now <laughs> it's been there this whole time it, yeah, but it, honestly, it does fascinate me because um, obviously with, the, with what Nintendo have been doing there's a there's a smattering of licensed stuff on there but you know some big games from big developers but the PlayStation does remind me of being a bit more kind of tied to either development houses that either been brought and then sold and <laughs> and completely gone, so licensing rights are all over the place. I think with a lot of these titles, or they're tied to you know, other independent people that you know won't mm. touch them. And so, and then you kind of it's always been the thing with Sony's back catalogue. It's like okay, yeah, there's some absolutely iconic stuff in there, but you know, does that make a, a confirmation by itself? I, uh, it's I'll be fascinated, and everyone was fascinated to see what would happen with the uh, the SNES Mini or the SNES Mini and the NES Mini. So, but Sony, I think their machine has always been about third parties, isn't it? So, it's mostly. About, yeah, yeah, it's about who who they. Well, people they've had very close relationships. Uh, like, I mean, you Ridge Racer will be on there for sure. Namco, right? obviously. Yeah. yeah, so that's almost a hundred percent. I'm imagine. sure Konami will. I'm sure they'll they'll work something out with Konami. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know how it will treat like multi-disc titles and stuff like that anyway obviously we haven't seen a mini that's been based around a cd um device yet have we so it's all been you know cartridge which sort of makes more logical sense so why not whether it will just almost definitely i'd imagine well music licensing is going to be a massive problem isn't it uh, yeah and it doesn't play that well wipe out three you might get away i think i think 2097 is the one that people really 
have the the fondest memories yeah. for and um that, that I played that with the D-pad at the time I never I never transitioned to um analog for that either so <laughs> um one other game that I just wanted to mention because it's kind of a running joke with me and my friend is the most ubiquitous second hand game shop game to this day uh, with the most boring title and it's called Tunnel B1 yeah. It was, uh, I think it was Ocean, and uh, it was made by these German developers who were very technically proficient and adept, but um, it just it looked and sounded so boring. Um, and you can still buy it. And it was bundled with every console bundle in, like, was it ni- 1996 for the Christmas release? I don't know how many like... copies they produced, but I'm going to say too many. <laughs> Maybe they made a ton out of it. I don't know. Uh, so a few Hall of Shame mentions. Uh, Mortal Kombat Special Forces. Now, I haven't played it, I should say, but these are some of the worst reviewed games on PS1. Um, this was obviously also not uh, not a million miles away from the MK Mythologies game Sub-Zero on N64, which is also one of the worst reviewed games on that system. So uh, Midway were really, uh, really, really going great guns at this point, um, trying to sully their once strong Mortal Kombat license. Uh, do chip in if anyone had the misfortune to play any of these. Um, both South Park the game and South Park Chef's Love Shack which I think was a sort of trivia game uh, I played the original South Park yeah. game it was not no, good sure. it was it was ropey to play like control wise it was so unresponsive this was obviously early South Park cash in fever mm-hmm. there was also a, uh, yeah, a first person snowballing game on the N64 I played that one uh, yeah <laughs> And it had yellow snowballs. Of course. Bubsy 3D, uh, the nobody's favourite cartoon action platform character from the previous generation, brought up to date in a way that nobody wanted <laughs> for for, a con- <laughs> yeah, for the next generation of consoles. Um, Bubsy's just always been a joke as far as I'm concerned. Um, the one that I thought was an April Fool because it appeared in an issue of CMVG magazine, which was absolutely stuffed full of April Fool jokes. They they went to town. They did loads, loads of f- fake news and fake games. And then in the middle of the review section was this game called Is No Good, which they gave one star to and and their Turkey Award or whatever it was. Turns out it's appropriately it's tested. a real game. It's a real character. Uh, something like an it- Italian or French, um, somewhere European comic book character. And there was a licensed game because there was, and it was it was no good. There was that. Uh, Spice World probably sold a few copies, cashing in on Spice Mania. Uh, I never played it, obviously. I was a twenty mid twenties man, but um, it looked it looked pretty shabby and like you'd expect. I guess it came out around the same time as the movie, but it wasn't actually based on the movie. Um, and one that I was reminded of the other day, Westlife Fanomania, yeah, uh, which is yeah just basically a a trivia game with some pictures of of uh, of the Westlife boys, uh, probably clip art <laughs> sp- sp- interspersed. But that gives you a good idea of the metric uh, ton of opportunist shovelware that came to this hugely successful platform that was very cheap to make games for. As of March 2007, obviously that's a while ago now, but it won't have gone up significantly from the total of 962 million units of PlayStation software shipped worldwide. Yeah, it's a lot of games. Uh, so is there any any key or cult titles that we should have mentioned that we haven't before we summarise? 
I mean, there was stuff like Intelligent Cube, which was pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, lots um, of niche, tons of niche puzzle games and loads of Japanese coin-op conversions as well. Um, yeah, I feel uh, there was a lot of brave developers then putting original titles out. You can make stuff like, quite cheap and, yeah, genres hadn't been set in stone. Yeah, I mean, I always I say this all the time in terms of, like, bold decisions and stuff, and I don't rate the game, but uh, Tabal Number right. 1, for example... Yeah. Um, was a really different take on what a beat 'em up should mm. be, um, with RPG yeah. elements. That was always kind of cool. We also saw uh, point and click games like Broken yeah, Sword, of um, which absolutely loved. Discworld I mean, was big. Discworld was big. Really enjoyed that one. Um, really, really obscure though, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Mm. It's, you know, mm. it, it's nuts. It was, it, it was cool to see all these kinds of games in a genre. I mean, um, the, there's a whole. Bunch yeah. that I enjoyed that Tony Tony referenced pretty mm. much the list that I'd already jotted up. Um, one that I would mention, and I'll just use this spot, would be uh, Olympic Soccer, yeah. a game reviewed. Oh yeah, I mean, and there was very middling to poor. <laughs> it looked abysmal. People liked it. Like it looked garbage even then, but it was hilarious. Like the commentary, and it was genuinely Alan funny. Green commentator. And yes, don't like Alan Green. But no, no, he's super no, awful. Yeah, Soccer 97 replaced that, and then that series morphed into the Michael Owens Worldwide Soccer Series yeah. and then into the UEFA Champions League series. Yeah. And I went lost, on for years. And I liked them less and less. And I didn't yeah. like the Michael Owen one because it had Michael Owen on the front and I could mm. not stand him. Have fun, fan. as he said on the FMV. Yeah, I know. The in the worst delivered line Welcome of all time. Welcome to Michael Owens World so, League Soccer. So apparently it was 2,588 games released for the PlayStation. Yeah. Which, yeah. I reckon I had about... 300, 400, like but it shows Probably. you, yeah, how how deep that, and it went for a long time, doesn't it? It had a really long back tail to it. So. Oh yeah, yeah, and you can still buy, you can still easily buy PS One stuff in in secondhand game shops. Yeah, it was a it was a huge thing. It definitely, um, it definitely felt like, even though the PS Two actually went on to sell more hardware, didn't it? I think I think it's the big biggest selling console of yeah. all time. Um, the PS One felt more significant in in some ways. Uh, Completely ch- uh, changed the whole shaping of a yeah. market. It was mm. like the mm. PS Two was incredible for what it's done, but the PS One's the one that shaped Open the modern doors. day video gaming. Mm. But yes, also perhaps it was when development started to get more expensive, as you say, Carl. On PS Two, um, studios started to you know focus more on um you know fewer bigger projects rather yeah. than ps1 era was still there was a bit of that wild west about it where people were trying all sorts of crazy stuff um yeah so many titles um i've just randomly remembered that one with bruce willis and apocalypse yeah anyway uh, we should wrap up so yeah, it's always uh hard i think on these shows to sort of sum up our time with a console and our memories but yeah just sort of your human feelings towards this little grey box of tricks starting with Carl uh, it, the, the Playstation was obviously incredibly important it, it, we've got to talk about it a little different to how we would kind of sum up a game because that moment in history has been unmatched for me in terms of how you could actually sense the tides turning in what video gaming was this was this was moving it from the bedroom to the living room it was started to get t- talked about serious it was on the news you know there was a whole presence of something that felt 
such a joy to be a part of. Like the things that I loved doing were now a mainstream medium and they were they were becoming more and more mainstream, more and more understood. Um and the you know, the brand PlayStation felt as big as the likes of Pepsi and Coca-Cola and this. Like, it was synonymous, but PlayStation was gaming. You know, before it was, oh, he's playing on his Nintendo, or he's playing on his Sega. Now everything was PlayStation, and that, mm. that was incredible. And the amount of memories it's given, um, and although we have talked that, you know, so many of the games don't necessarily hold up, um, the, the PlayStation, for everything that it's done for gaming, will always be the thing that I love, plus it's the system that brought Castlevania Symphony of the Night um, <laughs> such presence. And for me, you know, I I praise games all the time, but we talk about epic shelves, and if I had an epic shelf of five games, Castlevania Symphony of the Night is comfortably on there. It's be interesting good. to see if that one makes the mini, especially if, with it coming if out it on PS4. it doesn't, I'll flip a table. <laughs> I swear, it's got to be on PS4 there because that, that's, that, that is what I see the PlayStation Mini for. And... You know, obviously we've been fortunate that we had the PS4 announcement that we're getting a version of it on there, and that's all fantastic. But for all the great and all the bad that was on there on PlayStation, the the great far far outweighs it. And yeah, what a time to be alive and to have actually been involved in seeing the evolution of of Sony as a a games developer and for everything the PlayStation's done from the incredible advertising campaign to the way that movie tie-ins became a genuine retail thing for, you know, good or bad. They had a genuine presence. Um, All shops on the high street, it wasn't just your game stores. Like, we started to see these video games coming into supermarkets and um, HMV Mm. was importing. It was so weird. It was so different. And that was the PlayStation that did that. And I just think that that was incredible. I mean, what a system, what a legacy it's left. Indeed. Tony? From a personal point of view, it's yeah, it's when the industry took a turn and were less focused on you know a, a kiddier audience. Although I don't think that's entirely true; that it, it was never just for kids. Um, but the yeah, the attitude of a company to aim at, at you know a different crowd really spoke to me then. I would say, looking back on it now, I see the PlayStation more as the building blocks of um, 3d development so quite often I, you know there's a ton of games there where their life started on playstation but quite often they aren't the best games within those series and i think that's because you know from a technical point of view the playstation although powerful at the time you know is is very limited with what it was trying to achieve but that hasn't stopped it having a, a legacy full of joy um for me and i think some of the things that i love that what really changed at the time was seeing things like FMV, which is such a dirty word now, but actually then, mm-hmm. you know, seeing some FMV came up in Hellblade last just recorded. Yeah, last but week. seeing it in um, <laughs> Final Fantasy um, and just 
being blown away by the technology that was involved in that stuff. And yeah, it wasn't gameplay, but you know, my God, did it sell a presentation? And but there is games on there like Metal Gear Solid that I just are as playable now today as they ever were on that machine. And stuff like um, Tekken Free, which you know was a technical powerhouse by the end of that life of that machine, just yeah, almost looked high res at the time. It's, it's ridiculous of what they managed to achieve. Mm. So I yeah, I think there is some absolutely fantastic games on there. Um, and I love it to bits. Um, but it is such a weird machine to go back to because it is the old, yeah, mind's eye. Just some of that stuff just hasn't aged well. I don't want to go back to Pandemonium because I all know it will probably be terrible. So I want to just remember enjoying it. The same as Destruction Derby. You know, it's, it's lots of those games I think probably are best left in the past. Um, but as a platform, the building blocks that it started for the industry, and it's not alone in that. But the I think you know Sony really did change the way the industry was heading for better or worse. I'll leave that to the individual to decide. Um, so yeah, it's a for me, it's a great console. Yeah, for me, it was a hugely exciting time as well. Uh, I'd been kind of resistant to games changing. Really, I was so into two D sprite art, sixteen bit gaming in particular that. I was actually nervous about the way games were going. I've spoken about this recently before about, uh, you know, interactive movies and FMV and, and all this other stuff. And also just the embracing of, of 3D polygons because my earlier experiences hadn't always been so positive with, with games with, you know, terribly low frame rates and or, or just, you know, very um, stark, basic looking environments and things like this. So I hadn't really consider the possibility that if you kept adding more polygons and boosting the process <laughs> of power and um and and texturing them or whatever you could actually make these you know incredible looking environments and obviously as we keep saying going back to ps1 games in a lot of cases uh the 3d stuff really doesn't stand up to scrutiny um you know really wobbly polygons and also there's a lot of games design stuff that we've we've moved on from there are exceptions uh symphony of the night would be a, would be a good example but there are lots of other games like tekken 3 which was stunning at the time it's now had probably four five six sequels that i would all play ahead of the ps1 version of tekken 3 and there's many many games like that on the system um whether it's gran turismo so as such it's telling that i've still got a playstation one i still own one um which is not true of every legacy console um, but I only own I think two or three boxed games for it there are just a very small select bunch of titles which I can't play in any other way or, or better on another system um, so for me it's it's probably in some ways the console I would miss the least if it if it if it like all those mates of mine <laughs> if somebody came and swiped it um, uh, I would probably it would probably take me a while to actually clock the fact that it was gone unlike uh, some of my other machines but um but that's not to take away from the experiences that it offered and yeah just huge amounts of fond memories i think my fondest memory just off the top of my head other than that collective memory about buster move 2 um was just randomly one sunday afternoon picking up uh, vandal hearts the first vandal hearts um, never played a game like it um, just sitting down for I think yeah like we had like a an eight hour session or something my girlfriend and I of the game um, at the time and just yeah really falling in love with this new genre um, it wasn't like the most technically spectacular game on the system but it used polygons in a way that um, you know the the sort of the magic spells would swirl around the map and um and the the fire spells would light up the the characters and this sort of thing and um yeah i think 
I've got a few, you know, memories like that, which uh, which are what what it's all about, really, and and what revisiting platforms for these these podcasts are about. Um, but yeah, obviously, as Carl and Tony have already said, this console was massive in terms of what it what it brought to the industry and how it changed the industry. And um, yeah, I think lots to be thankful for uh, towards Sony for that. Let's finish with Jay and his dominatrix stories. Oh no, PlayStation, please first. I wonder, like, had Sony not come into the console market when they did, mm. how how different the landscape might be at this point. Mm. Um, but the thing is, I, I I genuinely don't have that much interest in going back and playing many PlayStation One games. No, I tried it recently. We mentioned before with Dino Crisis. I didn't last long into that game. Um, right. A couple of hours of play, and I thought, nah, you know what? And I think with a, with, but whilst I can't, whilst they've aged, a lot of the games have aged terribly. Oh, the memories that I have of playing those games back in the early, you know, the mid to late nineties, are probably some of my most strongest gaming memories. Mm. You know, be it the eighteen-hour session, and I've never done that on any game <laughs> ever since. But an eighteen-hour session on Final Fantasy VII. But, you know, I, I, I was so, so engrossed in the games and the experiences this, this system gave me. It just it genuinely shaped, and, and habits and, and the types of games that I still to this day, you know, focus on, which is, you know, as I said, the third person action adventure games, story, narrative driven story games. This is where it, gave, it got the hooks into me from at this point. From, and it was just and, it, and it's never gone it's, it's never died away it's just it's still there it's just I'm still I still get excited for stuff like this and then and, and for the games that are coming out but it stems from this console from this this is where it began for me really um, hmm. where it became a full time obsession as opposed to you know something else that I would do um, and I don't think I could, I can, that can never be taken away from the PlayStation and just how important it felt as a console for me personally. Lovely memories. Thank you, everybody. It remains for me, Leon, to thank Jay, Carl and Tony, as well as our correspondents and to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review or best of all, patreon.com slash support us to the tune of just a dollar a month. Next time, we'll be looking at Nintendo's pocket phenomenon, the original Game Boy. For years I've lived a double life. In the day I do my job, I ride the bus, roll up my sleeves with the hoi polloi. But at night, I live a life of exhilaration. Of missed heartbeats and adrenaline. And, if the truth be known, a life of dubious virtue. I won't deny I've been engaged in violence, even indulged in it. I've assailed adversaries and not merely in self-defence. I've exhibited disregard for life, limb and property. And savoured every moment. You may not think it to look at me. But I have commanded armies. And conquered worlds. And though in achieving these things... I have set morality aside. I have no regrets. For though I've led a double life, at least I can say... I've lived 